Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I have long, informal conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. And this one is particularly informal, <laughs> I have to say. This was my second chat with Dave Monday. Dave was the very first guest on this podcast back when I was first getting it up and running. He was kind enough to be my guinea pig. So I thought I would offer him an opportunity to come back and have another chat now that I kind of feel like it's found its legs. The you know the podcast has kind of found its legs a bit more and I would like to think that I've gotten at least a little bit better at this conversational inter interviewing thing over the last couple of years. So I wanted to give him another opportunity to just come back. So basically, because we had already talked about his pathway into science and, and a bit about the scientific work that he does in that very first episode, it really it freed us up to be a bit more tangential. So really, what you should expect here is a, a very informal conversation. We uh, bounce around topics a bit. We talk about stuff that we don't really know about. <laughs> It's very, very relaxed, very informal, is, is what I'm getting at. We do talk about some of his interesting work in oceanography. Near the end of the podcast, he's been getting really interested in jets lately, uh, jets on Earth's oceans and jets on other planets, and you know what can we learn about them as a phenomenon in geophysical fluid dynamics? What do they have in common when you look at their emergence over different regimes, like in different planets and in different parameter, different parts of the parameter space. So that's kind of near the end. The, but the other topics, uh, I mean, I think it's a nice chat. I had a good time talking with them and I, I hope that you'll enjoy it as well. I just wanted to set everyone's expectations very clearly at the podcast, uh, at the start of the podcast here, that this is not a typical episode. We don't talk about his science as the kind of focus of it. You know, it is a, a rambling, a little bit rambling conversation. So if you're on board with that, you know, stick around. <laughs> if not, uh, that's okay. Don't worry. It's fine. I do have uh, a couple of things coming up just to tell you. I have a conversation with Mike Meredith on the recent IPCC special reports on oceans and climate change. That should be coming out in January. I've got that all recorded. Just need to produce it and put it out there. And I recorded a remote conversation with Libby Barnes from Colorado State University, and we talked about her recent machine learning work, not just her recent machine learning work, but all of her machine learning work in, in general. And that was really good. I'm hoping to put that up in February. For updates on the podcast, follow. I've got a Twitter account for the podcast, at ClimateSciPod. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on there, and I also post updates about the podcast as well. So those will be coming out soon, and uh, I'll be at Ocean Sciences. I'm hoping to record a couple more AGU Ocean Sciences in San Diego in February, and I'm hoping to record a couple of episodes out there, but I'll see how it goes. Sometimes it's tricky to organize things with people. We get so busy at those conferences. But uh, without any further rambling for me. I don't think there's anything else I need to mention in particular. I think I've kind of set the expectations for you there. I told you a little bit about upcoming episodes. Dave is not on Twitter. You won't find him on Twitter. He has stayed away from the social media realm, when I, which I totally get. And uh, that's a very defensible choice <laughs> these days, absolutely, for one's own sanity. 
and uh, pr- productivity. I, I mean, personally, I've really enjoyed science Twitter. I've gotten a lot out of it. Uh, but you do have to be careful, right? It can be a big time sink, and it can skew your perspective if you're not careful. You can get the wrong impression that everyone is just constantly out there winning and publishing nature papers all the time, which uh, is not really representative of how scientists spend their you know day-to-day life. But anyway, that's that's beside the point. So, yeah, uh, um, I'm still on a monthly schedule. About once a month is about what I have been able to manage, and I will continue to endeavor to put one out a month at minimum. So thanks for listening, and send any guest requests that you have to at Dan Jones Ocean or at Climate SciPod, and I will see what I can do. If you have any people that you'd really, really like to hear a chat with, let me know. I'll see what I can do. Enjoy this chat with oceanographer Dave Monday. not the one known no are there more yeah there's there's actually a a dave monday in canada with a very similar email address which i discovered even even after the at um yeah yeah i'm imagining it's only one character different because i got an alarming email a couple of years ago from the national bank of canada or something like that telling me that i'd been accepted for their credit card i was like what the hell um you called them back i wouldn't advise this yeah I, well i it looked genuine yeah i was very worried and uh, when i looked i looked into the terms of the the credit card to discover that i wasn't even eligible because i wasn't a canadian resident let mm. alone citizen and uh, yeah there's no no branch yeah the canadian national bank in the uk <laughs> It would be inconvenient to, yeah. uh, to go pull out cash or whatever. Uh, we didn't have a touch-tone phone, so when I tried to ring the only branch mm. of the bank in the UK, which is a business branch in London, right. I couldn't yeah. get through. No, of course, they're like, why are you calling us? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just, yeah, it became this massive thing. What did they do? Did they give you, they, they sent it to you in the end, right? They're like, well, just, it's fine, just take it, it's okay. Just. Well, this is when I found out there was another Dave Monday in Canada with a cinema email address, because uh, it turns out the email should have gone to him. Uh, they're very apologetic. Yeah. Um, and then, even after all of that, they then still sent me another email that was meant to go to him. Oh and I was gosh. just like, I'm glad I'm not your customer. Yeah. I think I've said it on here before, but I get emails for Daniel Jones at the National Oceanography Center in Southampton all the time. Right? I think I've told you that before. I get like yeah. panicked emails intended for him. Oh my um, God, where are you? You're meant to be in this meeting. Yeah. SBS tried to give me one of our, our business services um, entity tried to give us they tried to give me one of his postdocs like he had hired a postdoc <laughs> and they, they tried to assign this postdoc to me as the line manager and, yeah, you'll be alright with this like, guy okay yeah you can handle it <laughs> yeah no but it's um, people don't expect there to be two people with the same name uh, I guess in the same kind of umbrella organization but we've got a really common name like it just happens yeah, Daniel you know? Jones yeah. is is yeah yeah sorry to say it's the surname isn't it is the... it is but you know it's fine because these names would only they wouldn't be common unless like people had them like myself you know That's so true. i'm i'm doing the hard work of having the generic <laughs> name so they can continue to be generic because otherwise we wouldn't have everybody would just have very different and unique names which i guess would be fine yeah <laughs> uh it would help with identification maybe we wouldn't need national insurance numbers and things like that 
We would just go with, oh, our names are weird enough and unique enough. There's no repeats, and we'd run out of names pretty quickly, I guess. Um, yeah, end up yeah. with barcodes assigned at birth. Oh, God. <laughs> this is like a this is like Revelation-style prophecy of the end times of like... <laughs> when we're all like, just a number. Yeah, that's right. Reduced to a number. Um, oh, my gosh. Are you awake yet? I don't feel like I'm awake yet. I'm not sure. Um... I'm trying to wake up, but well, I'm, not, I'm not really there yet. That's, that's why I'm on my second cup of tea. Yeah. Um, I think it's the, partly the weather, right? It's just overcast. It's just like a little dreary, a little... Which isn't that common in Cambridge. I mean, you know, it's usually reasonably nice here most of the year. Yeah. it's And it blows... Because we're so flat and we've got... We're quite windy. It tends to blow through quite quickly, doesn't it? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, but suddenly the clocks go back and it's dark when yeah. you get up and... Uh, and I've found I'm like embarrassingly sensitive to light levels and you know in terms of how my emotions are very yeah. embarrassingly sensitive to how much light I'm getting and whether there's any sunlight or not or whether it's cloudy or not it's like my body can't handle having a few water molecules between me and the nearest <laughs> star I just can't cope with this situation <laughs> how am I meant to cope without the radiance of every star in the universe <laughs> I need them all constantly I'm addicted I think that's, it's actually quite common, isn't it? I mean, I, I found when I, when I was an undergrad, in my second year, I was staying in a house that was very dark. Mm. And I didn't really realise at the time, but it definitely affected my mood that yeah. year. It was so dark. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the way our brains work, our brains like to go, oh, you feel bad. Here, let me come up with a list of a thousand um, conceptual reasons why you must be feeling bad. Maybe it's because you're a failure. <laughs> yeah. Why, why no. don't you work your way down these and, and spiral <laughs> gradually into feeling right. worse? When really it could be as simple as, not, I mean, sometimes there's valid stuff to think about, but it could be as simple as, oh, I just need some more sunlight <laughs> yeah. and I'll feel a bit better and I won't feel so pessimistic. Uh, okay, some problems are more complicated than that, but I'm just saying like, it's interesting and kind of frustrating how sometimes it is literally just I need more starlight <laughs> to hit my body. Well, the, the NHS advice on vitamin D is that in the UK, something like 80% of the population is basically starved of vitamin D, yeah. which we get from wandering around in daylight and saying, we are solar-powered to an extent. Uh, maybe not, <laughs> not like cats, no. who will spend 23 hours of the day laying in sunlight to be active for one hour if they could. Yeah. Um, but we do need it, and that has a massive impact on, well, on mood, but also your, your physical energy as well. It's astonishing how one small vitamin that you don't really think about can affect an awful lot of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It can affect your your mood and your like level of optimism and your level oh, yeah. and your uh, ability to focus on things. Yeah. Your get up and go. And yeah, yeah, your your get up and go. You know, I don't like to edit stuff out, but I might edit this long pause <laughs> or, or not. I might not actually. The warts and all, as we said yesterday, might actually be better. Maybe that's um, the time for the the listeners to go and make their own cup of coffee. Yeah, please go make your uncomfortable pauses. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, go make your own coffee, please, if you haven't done that already. Um, come back and join us. We'll have something for you. Well, I think this is the first repeat one I've done. This is the first, like, having somebody back. So I think that's part of where, like, well, I'm outside of my usual... I don't have, like, a strict format, but I usually have some loose well, kind of, oh, I can I can go in, I can kind of go in this way or I can kind of uh-huh. go this way. And I, I, I do like them to just be conversational, so I don't... Those, those are meant to be very gentle guardrails, but, you know, this is the first time I've had just somebody back so we've actually covered a lot of stuff we've talked about you know your your past and your Uh your past i said that like it was a 
<laughs> your your dark and seedy <laughs> past in Southampton. My dark secrets <laughs> that led me to this place. In Southampton and Reading and all of those <laughs> those questionable places. I'm kidding. <laughs> I like those places. No, I do. I do. I actually like those places. I'm just kidding. Um, well, there's bits so, of everywhere that's slightly questionable, isn't there? Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, including our own mental landscapes that are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Due to lack of vitamin D, sunlight, or otherwise. There you go. Well, we've already tied it up. I think we're done here. I okay. think we've <laughs> closed Good talk. Circle. I'll see you later. Yeah, we closed. <laughs> we already we we did a, a call back and we closed the circle already. So uh, now, <laughs> what are we gonna do? No, it's fine. I um, I did want to say that in terms of are we solar powered? You know, you, you mentioned that we're solar powered. Um, that was I can't remember if I've talked about it on here before. So apologies to the listeners if I've already um, you know, rambled on about this, but. I did the back of the envelope calculation once of if we could photosynthesize, right? Mm-hmm. If we did have chlorophyll in our skin, and if we were like a hybrid where we could be a plant and an animal, like and coral. you know, uh, do coral, coral do that? Yeah, yeah coral. They, 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 um, a lot of them have um, the photosynthetic elements are part of the symbiote, so the the hard skeleton is a mm-hmm. slightly different beast to the rest of it. Oh, Quite nice. amazing! Oh, that's that. I didn't know that. That's really cool. I'm clearly just a physical oceanographer and not a not a biological oceanographer for sure. Um, so it's a symbiotic relationship, yeah, with coral. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. So there's a hard exoskeleton and um, something and living on top I, of the exoskeleton. Yeah, I can't remember the details now, if I'm completely honest, because it's going back no. away. But, and, and they're all slightly different. I mean, the corals are amazing because they're also so diverse. Yeah, in how they form and how they breed and all sorts. It's actually amazing. Um, but a large part of it is is that they photosynthesize and also whatever animals do eat stuff, yeah. um, and it's all embedded in one organism. So, it's, and the, yeah. what you see is a, a, a coral is an enormous conglomeration of many organisms, really. Yeah, we should get an actual coral person to talk about it, right? We yeah. should get like so we don't launch too far into the two people talking about what they don't <laughs> something they don't know anything about. So once um, I read know. this thing about <laughs> something that said something like yeah. this. It's okay, nobody's listening anyway at this point. We've we've all lost them. It's Can I do that out yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm not gonna no, never. I will never edit I will never edit this out. But I will warn people up front. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, two physical oceanographers got under photosynthesis, which they really yeah. don't know of. <laughs> yes, that's right. So the back of the envelope, cal- po- very possibly ignorant calculation I did, which um, I'd be really happy to talk with actual biologists about this. Um, I said, well, what if we had the photosynthetic efficiency of uh, like the, the plant that produces sugarcane? Mm-hmm. Apparently, that's like a really, really efficient plant in terms of turning sunlight into sugar, into that carbohydrate. I forget what the percentage is, but it was way higher than most kind of, you know, trees and other plants and things. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, I don't want to quote a percentage, but I said, okay, well, let's, let's, as an upper limit to this calculation, let's say we were the most, we were as efficient at turning sunlight into energy as the most efficient thing that I found on this table on Wikipedia, <laughs> which is the honest, this isn't a real science like investigation, right? This was just me having fun playing around doing some back of the envelope calculations. And I, I said, well, if we could get our energy that way, would that be enough? Could we stop eating food? Could we stop also consuming you know, energy? Could we turn into autotrophs, I think is the name, right? It, mm-hmm. Could we make our own food? And we use so much energy that apparently, according to this back-of-the-envelope calculation, that no, we could not actually sustain our okay. own metabolism, even if we were covered in um, in chlorophyll and able to get 
And if we walked around nude and just sunbathed all the time and turned that into energy in a really efficient way, apparently even that's not enough to power all of our metabolism because we use so much energy. Yeah, I suppose trees and things, when you look at them, they, they last much longer than we do, mm. can do, but they also grow much more slowly. Yeah. You know, we're, we're fully physically mature in about 18 years or so, aren't we? And they don't need to move very much. Yeah. And they don't need to think about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently our brains use a lot of energy, from what I understand. Like a yeah, pretty high fraction. And they like, um, going back to sugar cane, they preferentially like glucose as well. So, so do they? The brains? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you're having trouble thinking, you should definitely eat a Mars bar. <laughs> yeah. But not a, not a sponsor. No, no other no, chocolate no. bars are available. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so one of the fun things that um, we talk about sometimes is uh, what if we had a, well, so we're, we're, we're both physical oceanographers, like, right? And we run models of the, the ocean and then we try to, you know, we write papers about the ocean and we try to say hopefully helpful things about the physical the state of the ocean. What it does and why it does it. Yeah, that's right. So you and I have sometimes talked about this um, idea of what if you had a planet that was totally water? As oh. in, not just covered in water, but water... Some phase of water all, all the, the way, way down. down. Yeah, not rocks surrounded by water, but like yeah. nothing but water. Um, and I, I like this. I like that because I feel like, um, well, we don't know. There might be something like that out there somewhere. Well, it's a big universe. Yeah. And now we know exoplanets are actually kind of common. Um, and, and exoplanets we're learning more and more about them all the time. Um, I think it's amazing that we've gone from finding more hot Jupiters basically large gas giants the size of Jupiter, very close to their sun and very hot, um, finding them almost everywhere uh, that, that people looked with these giant space telescopes. Um, and they were found first because they were what we could see with the yeah. technology and analysis. And, and now, they have the biggest effect on the nearby star because yeah. some, some of them are big enough to introduce a little wobble in the star, don't they? Am I remembering right? Yeah, That's so one the, of the methods you can use. Again, we're on a subject that neither of us knows in detail, but... That's um, this episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's fascinating that the the way the way astrophysicists find the or are they astrophysicists cosmologists. I'm not quite sure what they would call uh, astrophysics. Yeah, uh, so a cosmologist would study the universe as a whole thing, right? And they would ask system. questions like: Is the universe expanding at an accelerating rate? Is it going to collapse? Is it going to right? Uh, I see. Accelerate out to uh, such a large spatial scale that all the atoms are ripped apart. So a cosmologist would ask those kind of super When's large the scale questions. the universe, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. Whereas an astrophysicist would talk about that, like dynamics of galaxies. Ah, okay. That's and, useful. Yeah. yeah. So I, I find it fascinating because they're looking at things like the wobble and mm-hmm. being able to detect minute changes in the radiance of a star yeah. because this much smaller blob goes in front of it. Yes. Yeah, potentially a tiny planet goes thousands in front of, of the... light years away. Yeah, which is an inconceivable distance. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we tend to measure things in astronomical units, which is a, the mean distance of the Earth from our su- our star, mm-hmm. because that makes it easier to understand our solar system. So yeah. the the idea of hundreds, thousands of light years is just staggering. Yeah, and even even AU, you know, if you use that as a unit, you get to pretty big numbers pretty fast, even in the galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? What's the galaxy? It's a few hundred thousand light years across, if I remember right. Oh yes, it's enormous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, just last week, I uh, Google keeps picking up that I'm interested in strange things, and then I get news stories all about this for a while. So I think I'd happened to Google dinosaurs at some point, and um, I'd also googled something to do with stars. And so it sent me a news story last week that somebody 
had tried to put into perspective uh, when dinosaurs were around. Mm. And their way of putting it was that when dinosaurs were around, our star, the sun, was on the other side of our galaxy. That's how long ago they were. Oh, my gosh. So it, it's something, a half rotation period. Yeah, it, it's astonishing. It's something like 250 million years it takes us to go around the centre of our oh, galaxy. Go all the way around. And dinosaurs are, what, 75, 150 million years ago. So oh, man. It, it's staggering. Do you ever wonder, um, the, this is something that I heard a long time ago, and I wonder if you've heard anything about this. Again, here we are. We're talking about stuff we don't know about. Um, <laughs> and those <laughs> news stories that we happened to read thanks to Google last week. Hey, you know, but, I mean, if there's anybody listening who actually does know about this stuff, you can send me actual, like, video... Oh, sorry, audio clips, you know, in the Anchor thing. You can send me audio clips or messages cool. or And what, please whatever. tell us why we're wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, please. <laughs> please do. Yeah. No, that's... In the spirit of science, please tear everything we're saying <laughs> apart because that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and then the only thing that's left after you've gone through that process, is the stuff that might possibly be true <laughs> after you've tried your best to just destroy it, you yeah. know, with evidence, of course, not with uh, anger <laughs> and, and lies. Unless we're know, so to... wrong that we made you ra- rageful, you know, that. <laughs> okay, possible. so here's the rage-inducing um, hypothesis. No, it's probably not rage-inducing. Um, what am I talking about? So I've heard the idea that uh, a hypothesis that oh, what if um, major mass extinction events are correlated with when the Earth passes through one of the arms, the spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy? Because like the the density, the star density around us changes so much, so maybe there's um, you know happening. changes in just the the amount of stuff that's around and you know nearby. Um, well, I don't know, um, but I, I'm not sure about that. Maybe that maybe the idea would be. You know, we've got the asteroid belt and the Oort cloud and all that. Maybe there's just more gravitational potential sources of perturbations to kind of drag uh-huh. asteroids inwards or to kick asteroids around in different trajectories to uh, make them a little bit more likely to hit Earth. Again, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but it's an interesting idea, right? Uh, yeah, and we, I think from looking at asteroid impacts on the Earth and the Moon, we kind of know that we used to get struck by them far more often than we do now. Um, but yeah. that, you know, we're talking about billions of years. That's just a staggering length time scale, isn't it? It's but just... what you're talking about is probably is I think in the early universe there was more raw material. Sorry, in the early solar system there was more mm-hmm. raw material around that the planets hadn't swept up and cleaned out their orbits as as people like to say. As that's one of the definitions of a planet now, isn't it? That's part of the definition is I a planet so, needs yeah. to clear out its orbit. There doesn't need to be anything else in its orbit. Yeah. So there was much more raw material. I think that's why there were more asteroid impacts in the early, ah, okay. you know, so it's not early solar m- system. Material coming in from outside hitting us. It's we were sweeping it up and making ourselves rockier, I suppose, as well as. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, um, I used to work in this field a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's like eighty percent gone now. Maybe from my head. Um, well, every time you learn something new, something old gets forced out. So I hope that's not true. You know, yeah. I, I hope that's not true. <laughs> well, it's, it's true for my laptop's hard drive. Sure. So, uh, you, it's, it's very full, so yeah. I have to keep deleting things. It's so full. That's right. You said that um, you, we're not going to talk about how your laptop upgrade destroyed your file oh. system, because that's um, frustrating, but possibly... Uh, yeah, plus that will... That will be rage-inducing for yeah. me. Yeah, for uh, you. and we'll we'll lose everybody. The three the three people left listening at this point will definitely drop off. A, a twenty-minute rant on how purely through my own fault I managed yeah. to mess up my laptop for two days. I will admit, I kind of do want to hear your Python rant. <laughs> <laughs> 
her rant against Python. Oh, my latest Python rant. I'm trying to find Please, elements in an go. array. Let's ah. go. Let's go. I will play Python advocate. And you will you will attack Python. Well, this is just part of learning it. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to... I have a field and I'm trying to break... It's, it's a vice concentration and I'm trying to break that down into different regions. Yeah. Broadly speaking, pack ice, marginal ice areas, coastal polymers and things like that. Um and I have one way of doing it, but it's misclassifying certain elements. So mm. I decided to go back to the original paper and look at how they did it, which was um, it's a paper by Julian Strove. And uh, how, are you, how are you doing the classification? So it's based, it's, it's largely based on what's the ice concentration, and then where is it compared to other things. Huh, so okay. part of it is the marginal ice zone, which is. Um, uh, on an observational basis, is, is kind of the bit that's affected by waves. It, it's thin, it's out on the edges, and it moves around a lot and gets broken up. Uh, and that's basically an area of low ice concentration. And then there's the pack ice area, which is where ice concentration is high, so ice coverage is high in that area. Uh, if you were to look at, say, a pixel on a satellite image, 80% or more of it would be covered by ice. Um, so you get a very high reflection of sunlight and a very high albedo. Um, and then the bit I was having issues with is... Uh, when you get near the coast and you start to get polynyas opening up, so you've got an area near the coast with very little ice in it. Hmm. And I then automatically, and that's the key thing, is not having to go through thousands of frames and click and go, that's a polynya and that's a polynya, having to do it automatically. Um, so yesterday I was successful in correctly identifying the coastal polynyas and getting that to be automatic. And then I realised that then offshore... I was getting bits that were inside the pack ice but were locally very thin. They were then being identified as polynyas. Okay. They shouldn't be. They should be identified as something else. So when you say automatically, do you just have a bunch of if statements or something? Or what does this look like? What is so the um, th- this is some, some work I've been doing with Yevgeny Aksinov and uh, Stephanie. I'm very sorry, Stephanie. I've misplaced your surname in my brain. Um, so Stephanie had done this on some, some lower resolution model output. And she provided me with a MATLAB script. I need to write it in Python because I've got, got okay. terabytes of data. And I MATLAB need to script. Can you tell me what it does, the MATLAB script? So this MATLAB script, so <laughs> yeah. the way I translate it into Python, what it basically yeah. does is it takes the, the sea ice concentration, yeah. which is essentially a map, and the first step is to say, if I've got ice concentration that's greater than zero but less than 0.15, then that's going to be my marginal ice zone. So mm. we pick 0.15 because that's kind of the limit on which satellites can reliably detect sea ice hmm. so that's chosen as, as as one of the limits and then um something tells me i've got that around the wrong way that 0.15 is where the marginal ice zone starts well you have but thresholds as the, as the yeah, part of the point the, right? and there's a series of thresholds and the next one is at 0.8 and higher than 0.8 okay where a, a pixel is 80 percent covered in ice we say it's pack ice okay so the first step is to break it down into four masks that say whether it's ocean, land, marginal ice, pack ice. Okay. Using concentrations as thresholds. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and that's basically find everywhere in this array where it's between these two numbers. Yeah. Essentially colour it, this right. colour in another array. So that's pretty straightforward then. And then there's a relative location part of that as well? Yes. Yeah. So the, the second step, once you've done this broad classification, is then to try and look at areas. So um, because there's this higher or lower than 0.15 part of it polynyas that are near the coast they should have a low concentration but they should be near the coast um, so they should be in 
quite often they butt up against land, but sometimes there's actually a band of completely open water in mm-hmm. the model between that. And that. So part of the classification is then to say, okay, if I'm marginalised, but I'm near the coast, I'm probably a coastal polynia. Right, okay. And that's where and, I've been misclassified. And things. near, there's another threshold there where you decide what near means. Yes. Yeah. 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 So mm-hmm. it's essentially manipulating masks because I've got each... Essentially, each frame that I've got is quite large. It's 4,300 pixels by 2,000 pixels. Um, and I've got 365 of those for a year, and I need to look at multiple years. So any search that takes a lot of time is going to get really, really slow. So masks are quite good because you can index into the arrays very quickly. So I can just say, in one line, um, look for every location in this map that is between these limits, and then set this other thing to a value. Um, so I've got a, an array that I call the ice classification, and that essentially gets coloured with zeros for land, ones for ocean, twos for marginal ice, four threes for pack ice. Yeah, that kind of scenario. You've got aren't there some cases that are kind of a marginal, so like the grid cells are so are large enough that you might have a bit of land and a bit of ocean and a bit of ice. So that yes, that could happen. So in this case, land is good because land is just land in the model. Yep. The model itself has a mask of whether it's land or ocean, and you can't be both in, in this sort of model. Um, there are certainly points then within the sea ice concentration that that could be, say, marginal ice, could be polynia, could be... So it's, it's actually... The idea is to identify possible polynias, not definitely, mm. and that sort of thing. And where I've been coming unstuck is that part of the test for the polynias is that they've got to essentially be south of the pack ice. Okay. Um, and so manipulating the different masks and the different ways of indexing into rays. Uh, I'm, yesterday I was, <laughs> I was quite pleased with myself. I finally managed to get it right. Coloured them and identified them all. And then I zoomed in to have a look. And I was like, oh, hang on. That's definitely not a polynia. That, that shouldn't be my uh. Um So I went back to Julian Strove's paper. And in there they did it with a radial search. Huh. So they they basically their map of sea ice concentration, which came from satellites, they looked along a fixed longitude and ran out. And there's a nice graph in there of sea ice concentration on one of these radii. And you can see there that they've marked where these different criteria are met, covered it. So hmm. um, I decided this morning, having a quick look at it, that I needed to try another technique to see um, if this manipulation mass, which is probably faster, but maybe not as accurate as I needed to be, to see if I could do it in, in Julian Strove's, Strove's way by looking at these radial searches. Hmm. And that's where I came up against the thing that I keep coming up against, which is I've, I've, got, yeah, I've, I've got a lot more experience with using MATLAB right, to yeah. do stuff. Yeah, so, um, so you're translating this into Python. Yes. Yeah. And so definitely, there is a learning curve. They are similar to each other, but there is a learning curve to switch. Yeah, and, and in, in this particular case, in MATLAB, I would just use the find function. Mm. So in, in find, you, you tell it, I want you to find the places in this array or matrix where ice concentration is less than 0.15. And you can also tell it, I want you to give me the first or the last one, or I want all of them. And essentially, part of the search is essentially find the first one and then find the last one. Yeah. And you use them then to say whether I'm, um, I'm definitely marginalised or I could be coastal plinia. And if I could be coastal plinia, I have to check these other things. Um, and finding that function to do in a language that you're not as familiar with <laughs> is a lot harder. Yeah, um, I mean, Google and Stack Exchange should be helpful in uh, in principle. Yes. In, you just have to 
be prepared when you're searching Stack Exchange to sort through all of the snarky uh, answers that are like, well, why don't you know this already? <laughs> uh, and by the time we get to answer number five, it's, well, if I was doing this in R, I would. <laughs> right. Ask for Python. Was that yeah. helpful at all? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, yeah, it, it, is, it is kind of frustrating sometimes how, like, uh, the, the tone on some of those message boards is very much like, well, you really should know this already. It's like, Hey, I'm sorry. I'm learning. I'm learning, okay? Relax. Yeah. And, and in this case, uh, my quick Google and dive into Stack Exchange, and funnily enough, it's always Stack Exchange, mm-hmm. um, there are multiple ways of doing it and using things in, in Python like where, which you can say, find me the location where something is, is this value. Mm-hmm. And it's then getting a way to tell it, I want the first or the last one that's efficient which is where mm. I need because essentially I could I could build a method that does this that I'm sure would be painfully slow and that is impractical mm. then to deploy on right. a large number of, of bits of data. So I need to be efficient. And that's why I was using the masks because they're nice and efficient. You're basically just indexing into an array and colouring another mm. one a certain certain colour or a certain value. Yeah. And that's very quick and easy. Uh, and that was practical on the, the amount of data I've got. Um, but if it's going to incorrectly label things as polynias when they are clearly not polynias because mm. they're way offshore and they're just buried in the middle of pack ice, which means they should be something else. Yeah. You know, it, so how much, as you're learning Python, <laughs> how much of your um, frustration do you feel like, because I'm, I'm learning it too, right? I'm trying to spin up on it. How much of your frustration do you feel like is just coming from learning something new and having to readjust versus what you feel like are defensive defensible problems, you know, problems with Python that you could stand behind and say, you know what, it shouldn't have been done this way. Uh, I know it's too late, but no. It's it's definitely a bit of both. Yeah. So um, what I would say is, is any any given programming language, scripting language, however you want to term it, that I've used is flawed. Sure. That they've all got their issues (laughs) one way or another. Um, and if you work with one for a long time, you kind of you end up working around its yeah. flaws. You know it's what the, they are. The devil you know sort of thing. The flaws you're familiar with. Yeah. You know how to work around them. and Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You, so you get on with it. So with MATLAB, for example, MATLAB is great when you want to do any matrix operations because yeah. that's what it's designed to do, right? Mm-hmm. It's in the name, matrix laboratory. So yeah. It's great for that. Um, what I've struggled with with Python is that it's numpy and typey. It's... it's uh, numerical and scientific extensions is it's not really designed to handle arrays mm. so you end up with multiple ways to handle arrays and they're all a bit clunky mm. like um, you can do it it's just about efficiency and ease and um, but i guess the people who are probably used to it it might feel fine to them they're, they're used to that approach yeah. yeah if i'd started with python and gone to matlab i'd probably be going what but i want to find out this about that array why can't i just do dot something or other with the method and mm. tell me um, I do like the dot thing. Yeah, the dot thing where you can, you've got an object of some kind, right? Yeah. And you do dot. And if you've got a good development environment, you know, you hit tab and then it, you get a nice list of, well, here's all the possible um, properties of this object that you, or do variable you that the you maximum, could look at. The minimum, the mean, the blah, blah, blah. That yeah. is nice, isn't it? Yeah, that uh, part, And, and that I've got good. used to that, yes. is what I would say, yeah. because I wasn't used to it at first. Mm. Um, the two things that really bait my noodle with Python. That yeah. I just don't like, and yeah. I never will, is one that white space is defined by the language, not by me, mm-hmm. because I use white space to make my code more readable, mm. um, not because someone somewhere decided that it had to look like this. Yeah, but Python has it to where you have to use a certain amount of white space 
in a particular way, like in a for loop, for example, you you have to use white space in their yeah. in their particular way. What is it? Four or five spaces? I forget. It's, like it's, it's well, um, yeah. I'll, I'll use I just hit a tab and it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it picks tab. it for me because right. I found that was less frustrating. Um, yeah, yeah, and I I find that irritating because. I think white, white space shouldn't be important. So, mm. or you should have a way of telling it. I don't care about white space. I'm just using. Mm. I, sometimes you can end up with very complex calculations that you need some white space in to to understand and to lay it out neatly. Mm. Or you can leave it as one line, and then in six months' time you come back and go, "I don't know what the hell I did there." But it works. <laughs> it's very compact and efficient yeah, and beautiful, but I have no idea. I remember it, it took me three weeks to turn that into one line, but <laughs> I can't remember why I did it. Yeah. Um, and the other one is not having some sort of statement that closes for if like a for statement and a while loop. There's no yes. end, right? You just have a you invoke. You say for. You invoke you, you, uh, the for statement or the while yeah. statement or whatever. And then, you, and then there is no end statement. It terminates by the fact that you you change the indent, right? You either you stay to the left or you, you yeah. don't indent anymore. And yeah. that's why those two things kind of go together mm. is that the number of times I've written a piece of code and I've run it, and why the hell did it do anything? I wonder. And it's because I got an indent wrong. Yeah, I wonder what they're like in the room or <laughs> however this was decided. Somebody was like, I don't like end statements. I want to get rid of them. I want to, I want to destroy end statements <laughs> for all time. I, I know these are things that other people disagree with. You know, they might have started with Python. No, it's brilliant. And then I tried to learn MATLAB and Fortran and all that. Oh, God, it's horrible. I've got to keep putting endos everywhere. Yeah. And you've got to keep putting semicolons at the end of every line with MATLAB so it doesn't spill a bunch of output onto your screen. That, yeah. That's something I like, yeah. Mm. Um, and Python handles strings beautifully mm. uh, in, in how you concatenate them, in how you can pass them around back and forth and how you can index into them. It's lovely. Um, and I do like to be able to index with negative numbers and start working back from kind of the end of, of yeah. arrays as well. Um, but then I also hate index, indexing from zero. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember you were really upset when I pointed out that the UK uses zero indexing. Oh! <laughs> the ground floor, it's zero. The ground yeah. floor, first floor, second floor, it's zero indexing. Oh, every time I get in a lift now, Dan, <laughs> I'm, so I'm like, sorry. no, we're indexing from zero again. Yeah, I've ruined your life. <laughs> I've ruined a small part of your life. I'm really sorry. I'll cause you suffering now that I've pointed that out. Every um, time you get into a lift. And, and I, um, I know why I don't like indexing from zero, which is that I guess I kind of come from the background where the first element of a matrix is one. Yeah, yeah. Not zero, it's one. Yeah. And so I have to translate everything by one. And again, it, it, I, I find this might be a case of jumping between different languages that handle this in different ways. I find it very error-prone because, oh, God, I'm off by one again. Yeah, I'll admit that same thing. I like, I like the first element to be one as well. Yeah. That's I've got my... 2,000 elements in my array. Why can't I index 2,000? Oh, yeah, because it's 1,999. Yeah, this this uh, we get some real hot takes on this podcast. <laughs> I don't like zero indexing, and I wish there were end statements. I, in I know people that will believe I'm the biggest moron on the planet, but um, uh, and then then again at the same time, I like the way in Fortran or modern Fortran you can index from anything. You when can. you declare your array, you can say, I'm going to start at minus three, and I'm going to go to minus, five, uh, minus one. Yeah, you know, I hadn't done much like modern Fortran. I didn't know you could do that. So you can tell it what, it, what the indexing is, like how yeah. you're going to do it. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. And okay. where that comes in handy is when you're dealing with our sort of model, hmm. where... Like um, ocean models, numerical yeah, ocean so, models. So yeah, so where basically you've, you've probably got a box. Say you've got a box, and uh, you, you need to pa pass some information 
So um, let me start again, right? So yeah. in, in our ocean models, if we're running it in parallel, yeah. we've divided our model domain up into lots of little boxes, mm-hmm. and each of those boxes need to communicate because if they don't, they, they don't know enough information on the next time step because they're always looking slightly beyond the bounds mm. of their own little box. Yes. So, oh, that's right. And, yeah. and I found this really handy because when I was setting some code up, I, I wanted a box, but I wanted it to be a channel. So whatever went out the east side came in the west. Um, and I, I wanted to potentially be able to do the same north-south. But the way I could do that was by setting up that my channel was, say, 1 to 100, um, but then to have... Hold on, I'm just running down nerds (laughs) so I can remember to warn people that this is a very nerdy episode, which I like. I just feel like I should uh, point that out. Well, (laughs) see, I I could feel myself get enthusiastic because I loved when I realised I could do this was just (laughs) just to have bits at the end that hadn't had essentially negative indexes and and slightly. So, say my array was had one to nx elements and nx was yeah, you know, yeah. three, three million and one or something. Yeah. We're vastly smaller than that, boiled as magnitude. But, and then I could have elements that were actually minus two to zero, which mm. were pointing at the very end three, yeah. and I could have three on the end that were pointing at the very first three, and I could handle my overlap elements. So, yeah, so the point is you want to be able to point to a tile on the other side of your model. You know, you can think of it like... You know, I used to play Atari games when I was really little, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, I you know, I played them off and on for a long time, and uh, in those old style Atari arcade games, when you your character, you know, if you leave the screen on the left hand side, you come back in on the right hand side, and that's how some of our ocean models work. Yeah. Is whatever's happening on the far left hand side talks to whatever's happening on the far right hand side. They're called, you know, open, open kind of. These are like boundary conditions, periodic boundary yeah. conditions. Periodic, yeah. And that's what I was trying to remember. Yeah, and if you're doing differential equations, that's also a kind of boundary condition you can you can use, right? You can demand that mm-hmm. it be periodic. Um, so I think what you're saying is, if you have that kind of indexing where you can define what the indices are, you can tell it, hey, go go look on the far right side of the model, and there's. That's just like a convenient way to talk from one side of the screen yeah. to the other. And yeah. it just makes that whole process easier and kind of more straightforward and, to code up. So that's nice. And I'm not a software engineer, so I'm kind of certain that that piece of code that I wrote, there's a better way of writing it. Mm-hmm. But I found that being able to change the indices on my, my array were actually really nice. Yeah. I didn't have to remember that actually my array began at index four because one to three were actually the other end of it. Excuse me. Nerds. <laughs> Nerds. <laughs> I could I'm including start. myself in that too, by the I way. Could start. Yeah, you're right. Shall we go back to the, the aqua planet? Water planet. I had it I had it starred. I had it like, okay, we need to go back to the yeah. aqua planet. Yeah, let's Be, go back because, to the water planet. Um to get less nerdy. Yeah, I mean we've all, what was it you did you yeah. send me a paper about about a blueberry planet at one point? Uh this, isn't that XKCD? Isn't that Randall Monroe? It might isn't have been. that yeah, like I mean, if you made a planet out of blueberries, what would happen? Oh no, I think that was that was um no, that was on archive, archive, wasn't it? We need to find this, the yeah, Blueberry Planet. Because yeah. I, I actually, um, I, th- I found it brilliant. I thought it was absolutely genius. So this was a planet made of nothing but blueberries. Yeah. Can you um, describe what, the, what, what um, it was? Do you remember? So it, in brief, it was kind of basically enough blueberries to self-gravitate so that then they would start to compress. And as they did that, they'd heat up. And so you'd start to get geysers of blueberry jam, which I, I thought was fantastic. So it's big enough to self-gravitate. It starts collapsing under its own gravity, and that re- releases a tremendous amount of heat, and you get yeah. geysers of jam, blueberry so you, jam. So you kind of had this hot lava-like blueberry yeah. jam ocean yeah. with geysers of superheated jam <laughs> shooting out of it. My gosh. Um, That's right. And if this thing was next to Jupiter, 
then we would get long tails of <laughs> blueberry jam geysers. Doesn't Io Io does that right? Io spits out a so, lot yeah. of stuff right next to Jupiter. Yeah. But you can and it, it like I think you can get these pretty long kind of trails of material because it is influenced by Jupiter's gravity. Which has got so massive gravity and enormous tides on all of its moons, I think, that's yeah. what I understand. I know Io, it definitely does. Io, Jupiter, exerts this enormous tidal gravitational influence. It's constantly squeezing and stretching Io. And so it's heating up its, its center all the time, isn't it? They think that's why it's got a... Molten core because yeah. it's constantly being stretched and squashed. Because it actually isn't that big of a moon. Um, I forget how big it is relative to Earth's, but Earth's moon is already geologically dead, pretty much. It's, mm-hmm. it's cooled off. You know, it doesn't have any, doesn't have significant heat left in its interior. All the radioactive elements have pretty much decayed, as far as I know. At least they have. Uh, they've decayed so much that they're not providing enough heat to keep the planet geologically active. Mm-hmm. Whereas Io is getting squeezed and pulled all the time by Jupiter, so it stays geologically active despite its size. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. So the blueberry. Okay, blueberry geysers. Blueberry geysers. So I, I actually yeah. then I passed that on to another colleague because um, she, she had me laughing as I was reading it because it was just kind of like I found myself giggling insanely because I just thought it was such a, a brilliant idea mm. that someone had bothered to think through. And it wasn't. It's one of these things they said themselves. It was kind of uh, uh, as I'm remembering it. It was like. They tried to think of some logical progress through it, and they weren't trying to take it overly seriously, mm. but it was a fun thought experiment for what would happen if, yeah. if this. Um, and I passed it on to my colleague because she said one of her daughters, who was, is just started secondary school at the time, would find this fascinating as well, mm. as this is what you can do with some of the, the, the fundamental science that you're starting to encounter now, yeah. is you can start doing these crazy thought experiments. So what if there was a blueberry black jam planet? Um, you can write papers on it. Yeah, <laughs> and put it in archive, and then everyone can discover it years later. Uh, I need to find that. I need to find that, and post it. So the for the water planet, if you had a planet made of nothing but water, part of where it gets tricky to think about is so you've got a bunch of H two O together. Yeah, and it's now big enough to self gravitate, and so you imagine it again, like the blueberry planet collapsing under its own weight or shrinking under its own gravitation. And then the pressure in the center, the pressure would get higher as you go down towards the center. So the pressure gets so big at some point that we start to get into really tricky parts of the phase diagram yeah. where water starts to behave in a strange way, right? Where it, it is one of its phases, but it's behaving in a way that we're not used to because it's under such tremendous pressure. Water is really weird. That's what very I, so complicated. After we had this conversation, I went and, and Googled about water and things like that and i found that so i'm used to thinking of water as being water um ice vapor yeah, yeah. that's kind of it yeah. right it turns out that, that there are many more phases of water and there's like something like 14 and you get these amazing high pressure high temperature ices that start to form because the, mm. the pressure is so high that it kind of squishes everything together um and that's the type of thing you might so you could actually have a planet that was nothing but h2o molecules mm. but that actually had a solid core of high pressure high temperature ice sitting yeah. in the middle of it and it kind of reminds me i mean i don't i'm not an exoplanet person but i kind of got the impression that jupiter also has a similarly strange kind of core like it's gas it's hydrogen and helium for the most part yeah. but it's under such tremendous pressure that it behaves in a very strange way um yeah i because I, I think when i was at school learning about the very basic planet stuff it was kind of the the idea was they didn't understand how Jupiter could have formed without having something solid at mm. the center of it to start the whole process off, and the mm. same with other gas giants like Saturn and, and Uranus. So, 
Um, but you don't. You just need it. Just needs to be dense enough. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think current thinking now is that there may be a very small solid core, but you mm. could also have this effect that there's just so much stuff. <laughs> it, and the pressure is so it's high. It's just a lot of it. And so the question, like, is it solid? The answer is like, ah. Can't tell anymore. <laughs> it's, it's failing in some, yeah. But um, we, we've got stuff like this happening on our own planet as well. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to some geologists and geophysicists recently um, about sediment on the seafloor. And, and it's the type of thing that um, you, f- you form your own opinions over time. So I was kind of, wow, not much happening at the bottom of the ocean. It's a fairly quiescent mm-hmm. place. And from their perspective, there's a lot happening. Mm. because they can see their sediment being moved around and sorted and piled up and redistributed. So from their perspective, there's a lot happening down there. Um, and we were just talking about how thick the sediment gets in places. I wonder if they're disappointed that we just model their seafloor as a two-dimensional binary file that's just... That's, that's, just... Not, yeah, <laughs> that's not really well resolved. Yeah. And it's bit, you know, zoom in a bit, oh yeah, it's like little Lego blocks. <laughs> we got ridges and... Seamounts? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sure they are. But um, so we were talking about how thick it got, and, and I said, "So how thick does sediment get?" Because we, at this point, we were dealing in kilometres of mm. the stuff. Mm. Um, and kilometres I'm used to look, of sediment. Yeah, so I'm used to looking at these bathymetric maps and thinking, "Well, that's the, that's the shape of the seabed." End of story. But really, there, there's some of the, some of this is kilometres of sediment sat oh. on what they call the basement, the rock yeah. underneath. Um, and Ooh. and I said, "So how thick does it get?" And and um, oh. chat, chatting to a chap called Alan, who's, who's from the University of Perth, and he said that, that there's actually um, at least one place where we don't know that the sediment gets so thick that it stops kind of being sediment. It's not oh, quite rock, really. Yeah, and so it's under high pressure. So it's like at least fourteen kilometres thick. We can't get any further down, kind of thing. Fourteen kilometres, and it's staggering. Wait, so it's got to be. I mean, that's that's really deep. Yeah, um, right. So the the Marianas Trench is what, like ten or eleven kilometres. Yeah, the, I think so. We call it that the deepest place on Earth, but mm. it turns out it probably isn't. No, because <laughs> if there, we can there might scour be a, all the sediment uh, away, properly okay. find out, you know. It's, so if we could dig a hole, we could find some <laughs> other place that is deep. Yes, we could dig it. Yeah, not practically, but yes. And, in, and in do we, we could dig I mean, do a deep we actually hole. know where the bottom of the Marianas Trench is? Is there sediment sat at the bottom of that? Uh, because you know, it's so deep. Yeah, we, we can't really get down there easily, can we? Yeah, what's the actual bottom? Yeah, at what point do you hit something that is more like a solid, solid thing as opposed to sediment, which can potentially be moved around? Yeah. Um, anything is sediment if you have a big enough explosive, I think is the answer. But <laughs> 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 Essentially, yes. Because <laughs> that, that, that was kind of how the conversation started, was where did all this sediment come from? Had it all... The particular patch we're looking at had it all come off of Antarctica, or had it come from elsewhere? And... So we're not talking about necessarily being piled up on top of what you and I naively think of as the ocean floor. It sounds like, but instead we're talking about well, what we think of as the ocean floor. You need to go down a couple of kilometers before you get to something that's like solid, solid. In some yeah. places, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, Drake Passage, the bit of the world we're used to thinking mm-hmm. about, there. There's it's, places it's where the rock is scoured clean. between South America and uh, and Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah there, there's places where the, the rock is scoured clean. It is just rock, just rock, because the currents through there are so strong. Mm. Uh, nothing. If it does get deposited, it gets swept away again very, very quickly. Yeah, um, which is frustrating for the people from the geophysics-like background because that's their information. Mm. Some of their information is in the sediment and how it's layered oh, yeah. and deposited, and, and they're just in there. 
And well, we, we know that the seafloor conditions can affect like mixing rates throughout the whole water column. Mm -hmm. So this is actually really relevant, isn't it? In terms of like, is the seafloor just exposed rough rock or is it covered in a gentler sediment? That actually matters for ocean mixing potentially yes. throughout the whole water column, which is counterintuitive, but um, it's relevant for the whole water column because we're on a rapidly rotating planet. So <laughs> on a rapidly rotating planet, fluid tends to behave in a column-like fashion and the whole column can be affected by conditions at the bottom. Okay, just editorializing nerd. a little bit. Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, I'm a professional nerd. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the chief qualification. We right? both are, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and if you think about tidal mixing, something like that, that we know over time the amount that the tides on Earth are pretty strong in some places. You know, the tidal range is in, I think, in Nova Scotia, in, in particular, the Bay of Fundy. Like that's the big, big tides. Yeah, that's yeah, the big, big, crazy it's tides. Astonishing. Um, you must be able to just watch them come in and out. It must be like obvious to the eye. Like, yeah. there it is. <laughs> There's the high and tide. I, I grew up near the, the south coast, and there you could walk along the seashore. So I, I used to walk, walk the family dogs along there every day, and, and you would kind of notice suddenly. Oh, hey, look, it's a, it's a spring or an eat tide because um, suddenly there's no water, whereas mm. the day bef before, you, so you, you see this fortnightly cycle when you happen to walk by every day, you kind of don't notice the slow change, and then suddenly, whoa, it really, mm. really disappeared today. Um, and that, that generates some of this mixing, right, that, yeah. that you were saying about. The tidal mixing, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. And, and then over time, you know, it's changed um, because the... the Sun and the moon changing and things moving apart and whatnot. The position, the relative position of the sun and moon and yeah. Earth, yeah, that um, changes over geological time scales, which changes the tidal mixing. Right, yeah. and then also the shape of the sea bed is important because um, so at the last last glacial maximum, when we had a lot of land ice and the world was much colder, um, the amount of tidal mixing would also have been different. Um, and some thinking was that. Essentially, there was so much water locked up in ice, the sea level had fallen by a substantial amount. And we basically wouldn't have very much shelf water, so mm. shallow areas near the coast. Um, and that was what that would affect the tidal mixing, move it all into the deep ocean. But a large part of it is also the shape of the basin. And it's a wave, and that wave can resonate with shape, size of so things the basin, bigger. The, like the southern ocean as a basin, you mean, can be... Yeah can be a waveguide. Or in, in this particular case, it's, I'm thinking of the, the Atlantic, that there, the, the oh, size and shape of the Atlantic changed in such a way that it could affect the tidal resonance. So, like, Oh, sorry, sorry. So you were thinking of around where you... I got confused as to the location. We hopped around a, a few places. Yeah, we, I'm the, rambling the around the earth at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so... The, <laughs> where were we? The, this was a large-scale thing. I mean, they were actually... Yeah, yeah. It was a global... Looking, using global tidal models to look back at... Um, past configurations of continents saying mm -hmm. how would the tides change and, and they found that a large part of any now to last glacial maximum change would be a change in the resonance conditions so mm. the, the way that the, the wave interacts of the whole, the whole ocean in terms of what tidal frequencies like yeah. how, or how the tidal uh, forcing actually has like what it actually does to the local tides yeah that can change so the, because of the basin the, shape essentially change. you've changed the size and shape a bit of the atlantic and that changes the the way the way the wave reacts yeah. and it can get a lot bigger yeah you know, like so, get your washing machine misloaded and you hear it starting to wrap itself apart is it starting to resonate with the yeah the spinning of the drum and, oh, i was going to say you could consider different sized drums sound different you know, yeah. if you get a bigger drum, it sounds lower, like a timpani sounds lower, a big mm -hmm. old boom, whereas like a really small, tight snare drum sounds much higher, has much higher frequency, you know, 
Yeah, it's um, essentially the same thing. Yeah. Um, so it's similar to that. Yeah, if you change the shape and size of the Earth's ocean basins, you get different tidal frequencies. Because that forcing is always there. The, the moon and the sun are always there forcing the tides. Mm -hmm. But you get different frequencies based on that shape. And uh, I like that. Yeah, that's a... Yeah. That's a and the, the reason why I've gone off on that tangent is that that means that how much sediment you've got laid down on mm. that rock can also be affecting the size the and shape of your ocean basin. There you go. That's so, cool. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So, yeah, that's the bottom of the basin. That, that could change. Where the sediments are can change mm -hmm. the tidal frequencies. And, and the timescales of all of those things are kind of geological, oh right? And millions and that, of years. And that changes mixing. Yeah. And if it changes mixing, it changes ocean circulation. Yes. And if it changes ocean circulation, it could change how heat is partitioned between the atmosphere and the ocean because it might change the rate at which heat gets into the interior ocean and escapes from the interior ocean. Mm -hmm. And it could also affect the amount of how carbon is partitioned between the atmosphere and the ocean. I thought I didn't like paleoclimate, but um, <laughs> I just got really excited about that. <laughs> that that's, that's what I found with it, is yeah. when you start thinking about these distance time periods, you either... You either don't know where to begin thinking about it because it's so different, mm -hmm. um, or you pick one little thing and you start thinking, okay, what are the ramifications of that? And so that's the fun way of if you focus on yes. so effectively on one detail and then try and work out what the ramifications of, for example, Australia, Tasmania, and New Zealand actually being attached to Antarctica yeah. instead of sitting out in the middle of the ocean basin. You've done and, some of that, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've described that as a small detail. I'm sure if you're Australian, it is not all New Zealand. It, it, from New Zealand, it is not a small detail. But, oh, no. Um, I mean, it's, it, that change takes millions of years. Yeah. Um, and that's true of all of them. You know? At one point, it was all one massive supercontinent, and we think we're probably heading towards another massive supercontinent, and that's got to change what ocean and atmospheric circulations look like. Yeah. So what climate looks like. I know you saw this. I'm going to reference a talk we both saw at the Challenger Ocean Modeling meeting back in September. And you might remember the person's name. I've, I've forgotten. I'd have, to, I'd have to look it up. But there was a scientist who gave a talk about um, what they did was they went to a website that generated different realistic Earth-like planets. Uh -huh. And I think the original intention of that website was to create maps for like Dungeons and Dragons type games, you know, those kind of role-playing yeah. games where you could have a realistic earth, a randomly generated earth. And then they took, I don't know, a hundred or they took some large number of different randomly generated earths. So they all have different amounts of continents and different distributions of continents. Some of them were pretty much all ocean. Some of them had, you know, very little ocean, relatively little mm -hmm. ocean. And they ran they used these different Earths in a tidal model, like a very simple, fast, to, cheap to run, um, like barotropic, I think, tidal model. Yeah. Um, that is where you just worry about the tidal amplitude. You just basically got a slab you know. of water, and you let it move around. Yeah, single slab, single slab, and you push it around, single slab of water. It is allowed to change at the surface. Yeah. And they, the, they estimated the amount of tidal mixing in all of these different worlds. And this is exactly yeah, what you're talking that. about, right? That is, it, you, you get a different amount of tidal mixing of how uh, much of that tidal energy is dissipated by just the ocean circulation near the seafloor, on the seafloor, or near continents. And I remember a couple of different interesting results from that. One of them was that if you had all ocean, as you would expect, there's very, very little tidal mixing. But one surprising result was even if you had just a couple 
pretty small-ish kind of islands and continents, mm-hmm. suddenly the tidal mixing went way up. It suddenly got way more efficient Stuff on that whole something planet. to focus on, isn't it? Yeah. It's got a blob in the way. Yeah, um, which I thought was really interesting. I didn't expect it to be that sensitive to go from no ocean to a little bit of land. Suddenly, a lot more tidal mixing. If I'm remembering correctly, the, the results show that the Earth is kind of a sweet spot in that the amount of land to ocean it's got puts it in a particular regime that is probably important for, for its climate. But I, I, If I remember right, we... We were on a planet that couldn't get that much more efficient at tidal mixing. Yeah. I think we're on a, a planet that has a about as much tidal mixing as you could expect for a planet that has our kind of rough amount of coastline, <laughs> I think was the way that, that I, he... Um, but again... I wish I could remember the, the, the person's name as well, because I remember scribbling the notes down. Yeah. And I, I noted down the website address because I wanted to go and play with it. <laughs> I'll make a note. I'll try to, I'll try to remember to uh, put it as a comment when I... Yeah, I, I, I definitely can... got some some notes from that day on what they were talking about as well. So I should scribble their name down. Title mixing on different worlds. Um, yeah, so I'll try to I'll try to link to that when I post the episode, so that we're not just again talking about another thing that we don't know about. <laughs> but it is it is cool. I wanted to mention it, and I thought it connected with what you were looking at. Uh, big old big old spike on the recording there. Big old like. Yeah. I might just. That that was me bashing the chair leg. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Move that out of the way. It won't happen again. There we go. Um, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Um, that, that's one of the fun things about the ocean modelling meetings, actually. Um, so the the the, one, the meeting we're talking about is the Challenger Society Special Interest Group yeah. on ocean modelling, and they're always very diverse. Um, so the, we had people talking about um, parasites in Scottish locks um, for the salmon fisheries, which is. I've really enjoyed that over the last few years, um, how the, we've seen that, that work evolve, that they've gone from um, trying to work out how the parasites get in there and how they transmit to then working out which particular aquaculture sites are most sensitive, which are the ones that if they get a problem, it's going to spread to everyone, which are the ones mm. that we don't need to worry about. So it's fascinating, been fascinating watching that um, move through and different ways of managing the risk, I suppose, to the aquaculture. So you've seen that at several of the different ocean modelling, yeah. challenger ocean modelling. So you've gotten to kind of watch that work evolve over time. Say it's like four or five of them that mm. there's been people talking about it, which has been really interesting. Um, and yeah. then we, we, all, we always get a lot of students doing really interesting things with, with different ideas as well. This is a super practical problem, isn't it, in terms of fisheries, like looking mm-hmm. at the impacts on fisheries and how that spreads. And it's uh, certainly... A lot more practical than uh, exoplanet oceanography, <laughs> but I really like exoplanet oceanography as something to hear about. I'm not a, I'm not an expert in that field, but like as something to hear about and talk about. Well, the, you know, I th- what what I find fascinating about exoplanet stuff is, it's, well, we touched on it earlier that we started out detecting hot Jupiters, um, and now the, the technology and the techniques are there to detect much smaller planets, so things that are rockier, like the Earth, much smaller Earth-sized things, or super-Earths, very big Earth. Um, and uh, even getting to the point where they can start to detect atmospheric composition in, a, in broad strokes, I think. Because mm. um, so they can look at the, uh, the starlight as it passes through the atmosphere of these exoplanets yeah. and use spectroscopy, you know, break the light apart into its component parts, and look at all the different wavelengths of light that the atmosphere absorbs and you can get an idea of what chemical elements are in that atmosphere because of that yeah, yeah I, I think it's essentially doing limb sounding like we use on on earth with satellites for sensing the earth 
Hmm. Yeah, and the Earth's atmosphere, where you have a satellite that, as it's getting to, it can look sideways through the atmosphere at the oh. sun and detect um, new spectroscopy in that way. And I, I think it's essentially the same thing. So that's, uh, oh, okay. It makes sense that we do that. Uh, that, that, that. It makes sense that we have people doing that kind of measurement um, and then applying that same technique to exoplanets. Yeah. So this water world, yes. <laughs> this water planet, <laughs> we will we, we keep getting back to it. Okay, so we can't we probably can't sitting here without uh, any resources. We probably can't solve the problem of the interior because that's going to be a weird um, uh, high pressure, super high pressure state of matter, state of water yeah. that might be difficult for um, us to relatively terrestrial <laughs> scientists to I, say much. I would imagine about. we need to go and yeah. talk to. Condensed matter physicist or something. Maybe, it's, right? It's yeah. About what about near the surface, though? We can probably do a little better at the surface, I think. So near the surface, there's, there's I think there's going to be a, a liquid layer in there somewhere. Yeah. At some point, Are we allowing ourselves know, an atmosphere? Uh, I guess all we would need, we would need the planet to be big enough to have enough gravity to hold on to some of the gases, right, to yeah. have an atmosphere. I would think if so it's self-gravitating water, it would have to be... Strong enough. The gravity would have to be strong well, enough. Well, the moon is self-gravitating. It doesn't have much of an atmosphere mm. because it's not. It's big enough to turn itself into a sphere-ish, spheroid. But it's it not does big have four enough. Four to six nanometers of water, though. Yeah, it's got forty-six <laughs> nanometers. If you, I, Thank I God. Think it's, if you spread out all the water on the moon, which is basically in tiny little pockets of ice here, then yeah. you'd have somewhere between four and six nanometers this mm. incredibly thin microscopic layer yeah well it's not even microscopic is it um uh yeah so let's let's let our exoplanet our water planet be large enough to have an atmosphere it's got an atmosphere and well, i guess I maybe we should call it nitrogen because that's kind of a fairly neutral gas i guess but thing, now we're it? introducing another um element into our planet oh but we're gonna have a problem if it's water vapor aren't we yeah because water vapor is a really really strong greenhouse gas so if we have an atmosphere that is mostly water vapor, it's going to, like Venus does, right? Venus has an atmosphere that is mostly water vapor. It has yes. a really, really high percentage of... Um, no, sorry, wait. No, it's, it's, it's carbon dioxide on Venus. I can't believe I got that wrong on the air. Um, no, but Venus... Edit that bit out. Venus, yeah, edit, edit that out. No, Venus has a carbon dioxide... I'm telling you, it's been like a decade since I like taught this stuff on a daily basis. And no, it's got a carbon dioxide... At, and because Venus is used sometimes as an example of like, well, if you have a planet that has a mostly carbon dioxide atmosphere, look what happens. Then yeah, then it, it's that's a really carbon dioxide is such a good greenhouse gas. It's so efficient that it's able to insulate the the planet, and it's able to. Um, so Five hundred degree surface temperature. Yeah. or something isn't it? It's, yeah. it's not a holiday destination. No. So um, right. Okay. Mistake noted. <laughs> Venus has a carbon dioxide atmosphere, not a water vapor atmosphere. Because the thing about water vapor is it it rains, right? It condenses and falls out of the atmosphere. So if you increase the concentration of water vapor in the atmosphere, that is often, that's part of what ha- what happens is it just can condense. Um, so you so could end up then with a very water vapory atmosphere and on a very warm planet that rains an awful lot. Maybe so, right? Like, cause it, it, if it's... If there's a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere, it will, yeah, if it's high enough up to condense, it will condense and start raining out. Yeah. And then it gets near to the surface where it will turn, where it's presumably warmer and it will turn back into the liquid form. Um, see, it's, it's actually pretty complicated already. Yeah. Because we actually need to know 
things about uh, well, there's incoming radiation from a nearby star, presumably, and the distribution of that incoming radiation, you know, will determine a, a good bit of like what happens to this water vapor throughout mm-hmm. the atmosphere atmospheric column. Right? Where is the heating really getting deposited, and where is the cooling really happening? Um, so it's it's I like how non-trivial this is actually. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's an interesting thought experiment where you quickly discover you don't know enough. Yeah, um, yeah. And we're two people who are supposed to be experts in what water does. Yeah, but water, <laughs> like, like you said earlier, it's water is weird. It is weird. It's a very strange substance. It's one of the few where its solid state is less dense than its liquid yeah. state. So ice floats. I mean, it's bizarre. You freeze it, and it becomes less dense. Yeah, because it gets into this weird hexagonal arrangement with hydrogen bonds, right? And the hydrogen bonds are all about. Um, in a, in a water molecule, one side of the, the distribution of positive charge and negative charge isn't uniform, right? Mm-hmm. One side is a little bit more positively charged than the other. So it has what a physicist might call an, a, a little electric dipole moment. You know, it has a, a separation between positive and negative charges. And so it can be attracted to um, and repel other water molecules because they also have that separation between positive and negative charges. So one part of a water molecule can be attracted to a different part of a different water molecule, and you can get them locked into this arrangement, into this hexagonal arrangement. And weirdly, it, it affects things right from why does ice float to why you can style your hair with water. Like, it, oh, how does it Because you can affect the hydrogen bonds in your hair. Really? So when you wet it, you can change the way it sits. Because is that what is that? That's so I was told when I was doing my, my science at school. Huh. So you know, who knows whether that's still true. Oh. Well, you know, not whether it's still true, whether that's still the current um, interpretation of, of things. So you're affecting the hydrogen bonds in your in your hair? Yeah, that's, that's what I remember being told many years ago. Because there's also hydrogen bonds in your, in your hair as well. Well, we're, we're like largely... Yeah. Made up of water, aren't huh. we? with other stuff mixed in. I thought our hair was mostly carbon. It's like, um, I don't know. Could be wrong. Like I said, I, this was kind of thirty odd years ago at this point. The, the title of this episode is two, "Weird Stuff." Two guys, <laughs> two guys talk about stuff they don't know anything about and conclude that they don't know anything, <laughs> and then they go have lunch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, lunch is always popular. <laughs> yeah. No, lunch is lunch is good. But there, there is now. I'm trying to remember the name of a particular moon in our solar system. Is it Europa? think Europa is thought to have an ice cover, like an ice surface. Yeah, and, and possibly an ocean underneath. Possibly, yeah, like a slurry kind of ocean, if yeah. I remember right. Yeah. So Europa's quite a long... Is it Jupiter or Saturn's moon? I believe it's Jupiter, because it it's one of the Galilean moons. Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, I think is right. Yeah. Sounds right. I, I taught this stuff <laughs> every day. But like a, over a decade ago. So. Yeah, well, you're, you're excused. Thanks. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so I, that's, that's kind of, that could be a pretty cool example of what our largely water-based planet would, would end up like. Right. If it doesn't have an, enough of an atmosphere to insulate it, it would start to freeze. And I think that the ice on Europa yeah. is, is continuously sublimating away, isn't it? But growing from beneath. It? it simplifies things, doesn't it? Yeah. If it's small enough to not have much of an atmosphere, then you don't have this extra layer to worry about. So essentially, the, I guess the top layer of Europa is, um, because it doesn't have an atmosphere, it doesn't really have very many kind of greenhouse gases to help keep it insulated. Mm-hmm. It's always kind of radiating out to space, right? It's at some finite temperature, so it's radiating out to space. And as a result, getting colder and freezing, but then that creates a layer of frozen water that insulates the 
liquid or slurry type water below it, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, no, and I, I like your point about the very surface would be sublimating away, um, I guess because, well, there's nothing to stop it from doing that and then and forming ice from below. Off it goes. Yeah, and I think the, it's thought to be the tidal stresses again, isn't it, from Jupiter that, is, that might provide enough heating that it can keep a layer of, of water unfrozen. Yeah. Um, although it might not look like what we think of as unfrozen water. I would imagine it's got all kinds of, kinds of stuff in it. Yeah. I like this discussion, this debate about um, should we send a probe to Europa and should we send something that can like melt through the ice and then get into the kind of water below it. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting idea, right? But this, this is always a discussion you hear about when you hear about planetary astronomers uh, is, well, we got to be really careful when we send out probes to other bodies in the solar system for one reason, one of the reasons is we don't want to accidentally introduce bacteria mm-hmm. and microbes and other small living organisms onto a different body, onto a different planet or moon, because then that would just that would ruin. You know, maybe we'd go there at a later time and say, "Oh, we found life." Right. Oh yeah, we we, we did put it that. Out. Oops. <laughs> so then we wouldn't be able to that that would then we wouldn't be able to address the question of is there life somewhere else in the solar system or universe. Mm-hmm. Because we we will have put it we would have put it there we would have introduced it, up. it in the first place we would have contaminated we, our experiment. There was, there was a similar debate in Antarctic science, wasn't there, about drilling through ice to look for liquid water underneath the mm. the, the, the land ice on Antarctica. Um, I think that, I can't remember the name of the, the subsurface lake, but there was one, and people wanted to sample it. So there was a debate there about what if we introduce stuff that shouldn't be there. Mm. Um, and I think the conclusion was we keep everything pristinely clean. Yeah, um, certainly you have to try to and yeah. uh, do your best, and then you don't introduce new microbes and living organisms. But, but for anyone that's read Arthur C. Clarke's Space Odyssey books, um, then in one of them, Jupiter gets turned into a star, hmm. um, and the message to the humans is that the rest of the solar system is yours, but hands off Europa, because it's so close to Jupiter that the ice starts to melt and life is starts to evolve on there. Huh. Um, so you know, maybe we should listen to Arthur C. Clarke more often. He was prescient about a few other things. Was he saying stay out of stay out of Europe? <laughs> maybe he was. Yeah. Um, uh, um. I liked Space Odyssey because it was full of fascinating ideas. So when I read it, it was prior to me becoming a science, scientist professionally. Um, but yeah. I found all the ideas in it were fascinating. But that's that can be some of the inspiration, right? Yeah. That can be some of the that feeling of. There are things in the universe that you can learn about. There are things in the universe you can learn about. And, you know, science, the, an exciting part of science is just access to those tools, those, like, concepts, those ways of thinking about the physical mm-hmm. world that show you, like, no, no, there, there, is a, there is an answer, probably. There is a way that these things work. They obey physical laws, yeah. and they well, obey biological laws, and they... Um, you know, work in a way that can be understood and can be put into terms that can uh, you know, help us deal with it. Yeah, and that's that's an exciting thought to yeah. me, anyway. Yeah, I it think um, I I remember the, the the thing that made me realise that I wanted to try and understand the world around me was again another science fiction book, which was um, James Herbert's Dune. Well, it wasn't Dune itself. It was after James Herbert. James Herbert. I hope I'm getting that right. Someone will tell me in a comment. Um, and nobody's listening. Nobody's okay. listening. Um, after he <laughs> he had passed away, his son and and another author, um, 
Anderson, I think so. They they wrote some subsequent stories, prequels to what, what Herbert had, had written. Um, and in one of those, there was a scientist who was known as a planetologist. And his job was to go to a planet and try and understand how it functioned. Mm. And look, looking back now, it's completely impossible for one person to understand an entire planet because it's so complicated. But he was, there's scenes in it where he's... Um, essentially surveying a planet. He's looking at the ecosystem, he's looking at the climate, the circulation of the atmosphere, the ocean, and trying to put it all together into one coherent um, way of understanding the, the, the ecosystem, or the, not the ecosystem, the, the Earth system as a whole for this planet. And I found that fascinating. I remember thinking at the time, I want to do that. And, mm. and now I look back and realise that's kind of the point of where I ended up being a scientist. Yes. Yeah. Purely through a work of fiction um, that... that espouse a lot of the ideas I think climate scientists are, are doing now, which is we want to understand the planet and what yeah. it does, what it does, and absolutely. how that will change in the past and future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that story because that for many reasons, I and mean, one of them is it shows you that uh, art is important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's, it, it's kind of way, I don't know, way too often these days I kind of feel like um, artistic and creative and cultural things are sort of... Um, I don't know, they're, they're dismissed or they're kind of seen as like, oh, unimportant or something mm-hmm. that you don't need to worry about. But that, that stuff's crucial, right? That's, yeah. that's critical because we are, we are human, <laughs> we're human beings and we get inspired by stuff, we get excited by stuff. Our whole way that we frame the world and understand the world is like a lot of that comes from art and culture and from um, the things we read and the things we get exposed to. And I think that that's all what it's about is understanding the world. It's just doing it in a different way. Yeah, and by understanding the world, I even mean how we work ourselves, yes. psychologically or otherwise. That's all part of it because we've been influencing our environment for thousands of years at this point. Yeah, um, so understanding how and why we do that is part of the the problem. Yeah, that's right, and I mean that's that's why it's good to I don't know read, <laughs> ingest new ideas, try to try to get some concepts in in your head, and um, but but art can be such a freeing way to express. This, this belief that you can understand the world and you can understand it in different ways because mm-hmm. it, it, it needs to be true in some way, I think, to resonate, like to resonate with you emotionally and to excite you. It needs to be true in some way, but it's yeah. not constrained in the way that we are to be truthful, as in like it doesn't need to obey the exact same laws of physics necessarily. Uh-huh. You know, it can push the boundaries and it is something that can be totally constructed and it, it's not—it's not as constrained as we are. You know, we're pretty—we're pretty constrained in our tr- attempts to understand the universe. We need energy to be conserved and momentum to be conserved. We need these mathematical and some equations stuff and as some well. other stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that's why you can have such a visceral reaction to to artwork. Oh, that's just complete rubbish, or that's stunningly beautiful. Is that both valid reactions? By yeah. the way, yeah. Modern yeah. modern art, and, I think, would tell you both are fine. <laughs> and I've I've certainly had both reactions to various things. Yeah. Um, and that's probably why, is that in some way, if, if the truth that they're presenting is in some way anathema to you, that mm. you, you don't understand the world that way, or it's completely at right angle to how you think the world works, it's going to offend, for want of a better word. Mm. And you can have a just as visceral a reaction to science sometimes as well. You read mm. something and you think, I don't agree with that at all. Mm. Um, for whatever reason, and it's actually trying to understand why you don't agree with it, it can be the yeah. hard bit. 
And that initial impetus, that initial feeling, that reaction can be, that can actually point you towards growth. Yeah. That can point you towards an improvement. Yeah. If you follow that initial feeling of revulsion or, or you're, you know, you're, you're upset or you're upset for a reason or you're feeling revulsion for a reason. And it could point you in a direction of, oh, I just, there's something I need to understand better over here. There's something I need to dig into a little bit better mm-hmm. over here. I, I had that sort of reaction in reviewing a paper a couple of months ago. Um, and it Who was, was it? Spill that? No, I'm going to know that. It's actually a really good paper, and I'm very pleased that it's going through to, to publication now. Yeah. Um, and it challenged how I viewed certain things about the Southern Ocean. Um, and I, uh, I had to apologise to the editor and ask for an extension because I realised that this wasn't a job that I could do in an afternoon mm. because I had to really think about what I thought about the Southern Ocean myself in order to understand whether I agreed with what they're saying in the paper. And that would obviously have changed how I reviewed it because if I came down and decided, no, I just completely disagree with them, it would be one sort of review. But actually I came down on the point of view of this challenged my perceptions and has made me think about it slightly differently in this mm-hmm. way, um, which I'm sure the authors already appreciate, kind of got that point of view already given that they were espousing it. But um, it was a, a really interesting exercise in, in having my own viewpoint challenged in a way that, made me think slightly differently about things Mm. again um and it also kind of uh it solved a part part of the an issue that i've been wrestling with for a while to do with southern ocean circulation that i was trying to reconcile certain things together and it it helped with that because now i kind of that's great so Um, this is this is the critical spirit yeah this is the like and i'm being a bit vague because we're meant to all be confidential and everything about this sort of thing oh yeah yeah Um, no that's fine i'm not not expecting you to (laughs) just to spill the beans on what the paper was but um but that's the whole point of peer review right is to and the point of uh writing papers is where it's a conversation yeah and Sometimes you need to say something challenging in the conversation. If you've got the data and the evidence and a good logical argument to back it up, mm-hmm. then put it out there. Challenge people. Challenge the way that we think about um, things. And it's okay if you're wrong, actually. You, it's good to say it. It's good to put it out and, and I, let I that discussion... That's probably the most fun I've ever had reviewing a paper because it really did challenge me. Yeah. It made me think about it a lot. And yet it started with, what? No, come on. <laughs> and it turned into... A really rewarding oh, experience. It sounds yeah, no, like. I think you're right on that point. Yeah, yeah. isn't it cool? Well, that's exciting. Yeah. So it has made me think about things slightly differently, um, and hopefully it'll happen again because it was fun. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Was it the most fun? I had another one that I got to review where I basically locked myself in a meeting room for a day and did maths all over the whiteboard, mm. um, doing equation derivations. That was good fun too. Definitely good. need to put a nerd warning on this one. I, I will. That's <laughs> absolutely. Well, may, they probably should all come with nerd warnings. We're all we're all pretty nerdy, and I mean that in the best, lo- most loving, most accepting way yeah. possible. Yeah. I I think professional nerd might be the way I describe myself from now on. Hmm. Um, Business card with professional yeah, nerd professional on it. Nerd. Yeah, that's more general, right? Yeah, because we're oceanographers, but um, you know, it's nice to have a more general view of ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, we could potentially do other stuff. <laughs> and it, yeah. one of the one of the hardest questions I had when I first met someone, they were asking me what I did for a living, and I said I was a scientist. Um, now I'm starting to wonder if I said this last time I was on here. But they asked me what I did, and I was like, "No, what did you do today when you got to work?" Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, was like, and I got really excited because I'd had a good day that day, and I'd made a straight line. Yeah. <laughs> um, and trying to explain why a straight line was so exciting <laughs> was quite hard. 
Because straight line means simple, easy to yeah, understand. Yeah, I understand it. Yeah. I can take something and I can predict it. And I get Linear. Yeah. <laughs> Linear. So I was really excited. It was a great day. <laughs> Did they understand in the end? Um, I don't remember if we talked about it last time. No, nah, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I was able to fully communicate why it was so oh. exciting, but I think, I, think they, I think they latched onto the fact that part of my job was that sort of excitement of, I understand this now, and that was the, the exciting part of it. Um, and that you know, Hollywood loves to to present scientists as knowing everything. Um, you know, so you'll, you'll get they'll, they'll call in the, the person in the white coat with the glasses on, um, and suddenly they're solving everything from complex um, bacteriological sure. interactions to. Well, you and I have certainly pretended to do that. Today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, human photosynthesis yeah, and uh, blueberry planets and. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I know what you mean, but that in reality we become pretty narrowly focused and we really only know in detail a little tiny corner of, of the universe, our little sliver yes. of it. Yeah, we push out just a little bit of human knowledge and we, we push out into the frontiers of human knowledge, just an itty, itty bit, tiny, tiny little bit. Yeah, um, someone I've known since I was an undergraduate, we did the same oceanography, Matt Palmer, who's now at the Met Office, he once summed it up with, um, the further I go, the more I know about less and less. <laughs> Excellent. A delta function. Yeah. I mean, as you approach it, as you start to make a delta function, you make something that's narrower and narrower and narrower, but it gets taller and taller and taller. <laughs> and I've, I've found that, that that's something else to be wary of as well, because you do become an expert in something or several somethings, really, in, yeah. in what we do, right? So we're, we're both physical oceanographers. We also deal with numerical models. Mm. You're also an adjunct modeling expert. We, we kind of accrue expertise mm. in a few narrow fields as we go. Um, and it's very easy to fall into a pattern of that just because I'm an expert in one thing I must be an expert in all things mm. I think that's, that's why you true. get so many I'm, I'm going to say it I think that's why you get so many physicists not physical oceanographers and I'm not throwing all physicists under the bus by the way but you do get physicists saying kind of dumb stuff about climate and by dumb <laughs> I mean stuff that if they had talked to a climate scientist for five minutes they would understand no, the field has already thought about your idea yes. about the way the things work, and we show that it doesn't work that way. But yeah, I think that's why you get so many physicists yeah. saying um, uninformed. That would be the more polite way to yeah. say that uninformed things about the climate, and for I mean, example, it's very easy to do because you know your own field so well, mm. you know, and our job is to, in some respects, to be right or to work out why we're wrong is perhaps a better way. I think our job is to try to smash as much stuff as we can, <laughs> and then the things we can't smash are robust. Are beyond the scope of this paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, and, and I've, I've caught myself, and so I'm thinking, no, I don't know enough about that to pretend that I know I'm right. Yes, um, and that's good humility, inappropriate humility, yeah. It would be great to know everything, though. Would it? Then you wouldn't have anything to investigate. You'd be, when all of your wishes have been granted, many of your dreams will be destroyed. Well, that's true. <laughs> okay, it'd be great to, to have long enough to work my way towards understanding 95% of everything. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, this yeah. is the Twilight Zone episode where the dude has the library all to himself, but his glasses get broken and then he's not able to read all the things in the library anymore, right? Because he, oh, man. he's got all the time to read all the books, but he can't read but them Oh, I hate that. Yeah. There's a reason it's a, it's a still talked about Twilight Zone episode. Because <laughs> there were enough nerds who, like us who went, oh no, you turned my heaven into hell. Yeah. <laughs> Just oh, by breaking the glass. That's like um, 
Do you remember when we went to the, the Alan Turing Institute with, with Rachel? Yeah. And in through the British Library and, mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. just these enormous stacks. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I, I want to die and haunt here because oh, yeah. then I can just work my way through everything. That's right. Um, yeah. And seeing an actual Enigma machine was awesome. That was cool, yeah. Yeah, the, it's definitely worth stopping by the British Library. It took me too long. I've been here a while. It took me too long before like stopping in there. I needed a specific yeah, well, reason to go. And by that point, I'd I'd been in Britain all my life for over thirty years, and I still haven't been there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's so easy to only do those things when you have like a visitor, or you know, like you have to be, make specific plans to like. Okay, I'm going to stay in my city, but I'm going to go to the museums and stuff. Like, you, yeah. you can. I think it's good to like do that for yourself. It's like self care. You know, if yeah. you like if you like museums and that sort of thing, right? If you like that, then take a day off. Don't go anywhere. Just like stay in your city and go do the touristy stuff. <laughs> and, and there's loads of things like that in Cambridge. Yeah. Um, because it's well, it's such an old city, so yeah. it's got old stuff and new stuff right next to each other. This segment brought to you by Cambridge City Council. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's um, such a great city to be in, and there's lots of parks and you. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And museums, yeah. The museums. computer museum's awesome. I haven't been there. See, I should go there. This is the thing we're talking about. I've been here for over six years now. I haven't been down there. Oh, I need to I go. really enjoyed it. You it's enjoyed great. it? Yeah, because it goes right from literally the beginning of computers to, <laughs> to modern stuff. Oh, man. Um, so I there's think... computers there the size of a desk. How long do you think my eight-year-old would enjoy it? Do you think he'd enjoy it for five minutes or uh, 20 minutes or I I reckon you could use up a good bit of an afternoon there because as well as all the computers that look like a big box or a fridge there's also ones you can play on so they've got an Mm. old arcade machine set up and um, they had an old I can't even remember which console it was but I I recognised it from when I was a kid so it's not one of the modern ones they had that there with different games on it Mm. I, I went with my wife who isn't a computer geek or a computer gamer or any of that and she really enjoyed herself as well um, and at one point we went out into kind of the final room which is a big hall full of all these older machines and she pointed at one and said I used one of those oh yeah yeah like, well, actually, yeah that, that's when, when she used to work in finance that's the, the it's literally yeah. the size of a desk and she went over and went yeah look and, and I think she opened the door and went that's where you put the LPs I mean it was literally mm-hmm. computer discs the size of a, a, a of a vinyl record yeah. that you put in um, yeah so I, I reckon you could do it what happens if you accidentally put in like a Frank Sinatra record or something like that? Then it just puts uh, <laughs> out a bunch of NANs, I guess, or whatever or, the or NAN, NAN equivalent yeah. is. I mean, it, it had like this tiny little slot where a bit of paper came out with the answers on it kind yeah. of thing. It was, it was astonishing. I remember uh, to relate to this, the chair of my old physics department said that he really felt old when he visited like the Smithsonian Museum in the States. <laughs> and he saw a computer, like a supercomputer that he had worked on. Not one like it. But no, it was the supercomputer he had worked and on it was now when he was in grade school, and now it's an exhibit in a in a computing museum section of the Smithsonian. <laughs> was it a punch card machine? I don't remember. I'm not sure. Yeah, I... My dad took punch card classes when he was at Georgia Tech in the 70s. Yeah, in the 70s. Like, he took oh, some classes. He did some... I think it was like a basic Fortran thing. He'd, yeah. he'd write up a program in punch card format and then go drop it yeah. off at the library. Gets and fed in. Yeah, I, I forget guess. if he had to do it or if the library person, like if you gave it to the librarian and they ran it, and I, I forget yeah. which one of that, but he had, well, to, he had to do some punch card computing. One of my PhD supervisors, Ian James, um, so when he was a student, he, he was a student at... Did we talk about this last time? I'm not time? sure. He was at University of Reading as well. Mm, I should have listened to the last episode. He dropped a stack of punch cards in a puddle. 
I think we did talk about yeah. this. This sounds familiar. It does. His program was ruined, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, he was also carrying one for somebody else. We did talk about this. And they weren't numbered. I remember this. <laughs> Either we've talked about this at lunch or on the last episode. Um, but there's, there's a bit of me that really wants to use a punch card machine. Um, hmm. Just, just to, to, to try it out, to see what it was like. I mean, that would be a fun computer exhibit, right? Of like, try yeah. this out and see how quickly you get frustrated with the... Right, with here's, the a, here's a simple program that does this mm. tiny calculation that now you don't even think about. And then you have to stand there feeding your punch cards in, in the right order. Um, yeah. Get them in the right order. The calculation's not going to work. But these days, I mean, my, my son and I have been having fun with the micro bit, BBC micro bit. And I think I told you about it, right? It's a little tiny, just a circuit board, and it's got... LEDs. It's got a, it's oh, got a right. twenty-five pixel screen, <laughs> quote unquote, <laughs> which is just LEDs. Well, that's cool. It's got a light sensor. It's got an accelerometer. It's got, um, it. You can use alligator clips and hook it up to a speaker. Uh-huh. And it's got bu- a couple of buttons on it for simple input output. So it can and it can sense its tilt and things like that. And you can program it. There's. It's got a web-based interface, or you can do Java, I think. Mm-hmm. And you code up this little program on the website on the make code website and you download a little hex file onto your micro bit and then the uh, program works you can program simple games on there you can turn it into um so the thing that we tried to do on sunday was we got a little bit other ways towards making a light sensor that that sets off an alarm if the light level gets above a certain uh-huh. uh, percentage so if it gets bright enough, the alarm goes off. So this could be like a light-based alarm clock yeah. you know, in the morning. Or it could be a fridge alarm, an alarm for when somebody opens the fridge. Because you know, <laughs> the light turns on, right? Suddenly when you open the fridge, and uh-huh. you'd have a little alarm going you off. You know someone's sneaking in there for that last bit of chocolate cake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I just think that's that's really cool that like these days for, for kids growing up, like they can have pretty direct access to a working, functional com- mini-computer yeah. And they can see how it works, and they can program it in a very basic way, and get some intuition about how programming works, you know, from an early age. I've been amazed at some of the, the things I've seen that are, are used in schools to start teaching programming at such a young age, with the um, things like um, drag and drop programming. Mm-hmm. They, they're really learning about logic gates and things like that, but it's it's done in a well, a gentle way. It's disguised by the fact that they're dragging things in a certain order, yes. so they're not having to learn what. Or an and and all this are well they do but it's graphical exactly yeah, yeah. so they're, they're learning it in that way rather than having someone dryly stand at a whiteboard <laughs> and writing it all out and yeah. talking about binary so an if statement is a little set of it's a little block you drag over and then you plug different bits into the empty spaces uh-huh. and the different like if this then do this if unless if else this then do that and you just plug different blocks into it graphically it's kind of like um mit has this scratch thing scratch Oh, which, which, that. that's a, also a web-based kind of programming simplified programming interface that is just based on this graphical element of dragging blocks around mm-hmm. it's really cool that's really nice it's been it's been fun to introduce my kid to that um so i have no clean segue for this but i wondered if um so why does the ocean have fronts in it <laughs> you know why does the ocean have this is something i've been trying to um play with a little bit and play with different methods of looking for um, front. So the ocean has regions of sharp transition where, yeah. where the temperature, salinity properties, you know, density properly, properties suddenly change over a relatively short kind of space. 
And um, yeah, it's interesting to think about why do those exist? And you've been, I mean, tell me, it's okay if you don't want to talk about it because I know you, you've got like a paper you're working on along these lines, fronts and yeah. jets. But if you wanted to wait till you you know had that all done, that's well, fine. Or with, if you wanted to chat with about the caveat it, that's fine. that we're still working through trying to understand all of it. Um, I probably should have opened with this. <laughs> so th- this is with Andreas Klocker in, in yeah. University of Tasmania and Jada Case from Oslo. Um, and it started off, um, like me and, or like us, Andreas uses numerical models. And we had very similar numerical models of the Southern Ocean that exhibited different behaviour. Um, and in, in Andreas's case, it created jets or fronts, so these sharp areas of that downside of, of density transition that have accompanying strong currents with them um, and my model didn't Yeah. Um, and we tried to work out why and we kind of wandered around and fumbled about in the dark for a bit and worked out why we were wrong many times and it really came down to the ocean depth that his ocean was 5,000 metres deep and mine was only 3,000 mm-hmm. um, and, and that I guess is where um, Joe Case came in he, he's a very smart chap who, who deals in, in more theoretical stuff than Andreas and I um, so we've been putting our brains together and trying to work through essentially asking why does the Southern Ocean get its jets and its fronts and, and things like that. Um, and again, I discovered that I had to rewrite some of my intuition. Um, and and an oceanographer's intuition is that these types of structures, in a, in a strong sense, tend to form at relatively high latitudes. We see them in the Southern Ocean. But if you look... Um, at other planets like Jupiter mm-hmm. uh, so uh, Google started sending me a lot of pic- pretty pictures of Jupiter because I've been Googling jets fronts and Jupiter and, and it, on Jupiter there's a very clear split between um, near the equator it has um, a very wavy regime where you see gentle undulations and it, it's gas bands and, and things like that and then up near the poles you have this very um, turbulent small scale structure and stirring everything around. And then in between, in more like the mid-latitude, you have these strong jets, um, which you can see in the, the striations. In Jupiter. On Jupiter. And, yeah. On Jupiter, yeah. yeah. Um, in its atmosphere. And and that's why I had to rewrite my intuition, is that if you look at where the Earth has its jets, they're not really at the place where Jupiter does. Um, and one of the really cool things about Jupiter is we saw the poles relatively recently and discovered yes. it had these very geometric structures yeah. at the poles. As in we, it's the Juno Juno satellite, I believe, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so we in the very general sense of humanity. Humans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, right, we're some of the first humans ever in existence to see, well, not in existence, we're some of the first humans ever at, uh-huh. uh, across all of history to know what the poles of Jupiter look like. Because you know, prior to the Juno satellite, we could only kind of view it from the side. You could yeah. only see the side of Jupiter. So that's a that's a really really lucky in that way to be in this particular you know first group of humans. And briefly going back to Cambridge Choice Board proudly, proudly presenting, um, one of the really cool things about moving here because I've always lived in the middle of big towns and cities, and now I live in a small village outside Cambridge. Um, sometimes I can see Jupiter mm. and Mars and Venus. And nice. one, yep. one New Year's Eve, looked out the window, beautiful, cloud-free night, and there was the moon, and there were these three bright dots. Mm. And, yeah, and I was like, oh, <laughs> never seen that before. Um, that was quite astonishing. Yeah, so there are apps you can get now that they're like a mini augmented reality sort of thing where you can hold it up to the sky oh, and, it will tell you and they can show is. you what planets you're looking at or what stars you're looking oh, that's at. that's so cool. It's really good. Yeah, it's I cool. I should try that. Yeah. 
Um, um, I'm not going to plug any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Just Google Google that Google sort of thing, and you'll, it'll come up. And, and then um, Google will forever more give you more and more options, as yeah, I've discovered. That's right. Hey, look, another photo of Jupiter. Um, yeah. yeah, so the, the jets in the fronts that we have in the Southern Ocean, the large-scale ones, because I'm, I'm guessing that, that these things have multiple scales, some you see much smaller, and there's, there's probably... Yes. The detailed dynamics of it is probably different, I would guess, or at least subtly different. And and so these large-scale fronts, what we've been looking into is effectively a competition between um, the the deformation radius, which is the scale at which rotation becomes important, and that depends on um, how strongly your density is changing, and it also depends on the depth of your ocean and how quickly you're rotating locally. And then also the sphericity of the Earth. So the fact that um, at the equator you don't feel the effects of rotation at all, mm. but at the poles you feel it very strongly. And those two things, that's a gradient in the rotation effectively. Um, and so there's a competition between those two scales. And, and what we were really finding was that um, I didn't get jets because my, my, uh, my domain wasn't deep enough. And so my deformation scale wasn't big enough. And so things didn't grow to the right scale that they could then encounter this other length scale that was to do with the sphericity of the Earth. So when you say things didn't grow, like, so there's a perturbation in the fluid, like some some change that sets off some waves or different modes of variation. Yeah. And in in a highly, like a nonlinear fluid on a rapidly rotating planet, some of those perturbations, some of those small changes um, grow into bigger and bigger changes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the, there's these two things, the deformation scale and then the Rhine scale, which is named after Peter Rhine, who came up with it. And essentially what can happen is you can have an eddy, a closed-off coherent vortex, and it's going to grow and grow and grow to the, to the deformation scale. And if that deformation scale is bigger than the, the Rhine scale then it gets there and it starts to interact with other structures in the flow, which are called Rosby waves. So in many ways, that eddy is almost like a Rosby wave that broke. Um, So like you see waves coming in at the coast and the breaking of the waves, it's that kind of process. And they interact with each other and that causes um, zonation to the flow. So everything becomes elongated zonally um, and you start to get very strong jets. So what's the Rhine scale measure again? Or what is that a scale of? Um, So it comes out of... uh, particular type of theory so strictly speaking it comes from um, barotropic theory which means uh, think of it as a slab of ocean with no density change Mm -hmm. just a slab of ocean Mm -hmm. it comes from looking at that turbulence and it's related to the the speed of the motions so how strong the eddy field is in many respects and then how spherical the earth is Mm -hmm. so um, the it's the gradient in the the rotation vector of the earth so if you're spinning faster that gradient goes up Uh, or if you make the planet change the planet's size you can change that gradient as well because it's yeah. latitudinal gradient right right well you described the the rusby radius the deformation radius yeah i thought yeah i think that was really clear right and then the the rhine scale has to do with something about jets as well isn't it about the jet scale yeah so that yeah. can set people talk about it in terms of the width of the jet yeah. and the separation of these jets because you get multiple ones of them um and so the that's that's the bit that we understand at the moment and mm-hmm. um, that we've worked our way towards understanding and, and why it was that in the in our model oceans that are different depths we can change um, how jetty it is, so mm-hmm. whether it forms jets or whether it's very turbulent. 
and we, we can see a very clear split. And what we're looking into now and trying to understand is some details of um, when the jets form and when they don't, because we've got some cases where we wouldn't expect to see them and they pop out still. Mm. Uh, and frustratingly, um, the three of us were, were talking um, uh, and through the auspices of the internet earlier in the week, and I had seen a reference. I was digging into a few things beforehand, and I'm convinced I saw a reference that explained how you can get jets with no eddies, and now I can't for the life of me find it. Oh, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God, what did I do? Did I close the tab in, in my browser? Did I delete the PDF? Did oh I, what have I done? Which one was it? So um, you had the secret to the universe right there. <laughs> Somebody had already written it Someone down had already you. thought that thought that through for me um, and control w just <laughs> or <laughs> I, yeah or i i closed yeah i, I was looking on web of knowledge at, at papers that cited another paper and yeah so I, I might have to backtrack my my tracking process the tornado of information that is the internet yeah it is disorienting yeah um and it's <laughs> and one it of those be. things actually that i've enjoyed doing it because it makes me feel like i understand something a bit better than mm-hmm. I did before. But it also feels like I should have understood this years ago. <laughs> um, because the, the Ryan scale and the deformation scale and the way they interact, it's been known for decades. Yeah. Um, it's just a lot of the, the theory for it um, is either being applied to the atmosphere where um, the vertical stratification is, is, I think, arguably weaker than the ocean. And it's also very deep. Mm-hmm. The, the atmosphere is very thick compared to the ocean. Um or it's come from quasi-geostrophic theory, so where you where you assume the ocean is strongly constrained by its rotation and its pressure gradients, yeah. but you relax that slightly and allow it to not be quite so strongly constrained, which means the depth is a parameter that's fixed and the stratification mm. is a parameter that's fixed. And, uh, and the def- Stratification and being the rate at which the density changes yeah. with depth. Yeah. And, and what that goes on to tell you for QG is that the deformation scale is fixed. Quasi-geostrophy, yeah. You fix your deformation scale. It's yeah. a parameter yeah. of yeah. Your, your simulation. Whereas in the way we've been doing it, it is an emergent property. It's not something mm. we fixed beforehand. So the elements of this sound like, if, if we were to try to say it in really simple terms, the elements of this include... The way in which small changes grow, mm-hmm. or don't, or don't, yeah. Um, the rotation of the planet and how the way that rotation is felt changes with latitude, yeah. And these, and the size of the other structures that are already there because of the size and shape of the Earth and the intrinsic variability in fluids, like the Rossby waves that you mentioned. You know, you get those on a rotating planet, yeah and large-scale Rossby waves. If you've got a rotating planet and, a, and a, some kind of you know gradient in that latitude, uh, then you need it. Sorry. Um, and so those three elements can all come together through scaling, through interacting with... Every scale interacts with every other scale, and the specific way in which these scales of motion and evolution interact with each other determines a bit about whether you have eddies like vortices or whether you have jets mm-hmm. like Jupiter does and like the Southern Ocean does or whether you have a more quiescent sort of wave-like situation in your in your ocean and uh, I, I love that I love the subtlety of that and the sophistication of that and the, it's really it's a beautiful set of kind of equations and it's a beautiful set of concepts that I think part of why I still love it is I feel like I don't totally have my head around it 100%, even though it's, you know, a big part of like... Definitely not the door. Yeah, no, and, yeah, I, um, and, and I think that's part of what makes it appealing to me is like, oh, there's still some, some, there's still some mystery here and something that I need to 
think a bit harder about to really latch on to. And, and there's still a lot of work being done on this in, in other fields yeah. as well. So um, we had a, a really good seminar here, of, I guess, a few months ago now um, from Laura Cope. Mm. I hope I've got your surname right, Laura, uh, who came over from theoretical physics at the university, and she was talking about how these jets migrate. Mm -hmm. um, the way in which jets might move around. Yeah, yeah. how they might change. The, the, the ones that Andreas, Joe, and I have got in our model are, are very fixed in latitude, um, but sometimes you see them moving around and the dynamics of how that happens. And it was incredibly intricate, but she did a great job at explaining it. That's it right. so understandable. She did. I feel like the takeaway was... The, the way in which all the different scales interact with each other really matters and can yeah. really change what the details of what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've come across another branch of, I guess it's instability theory, of, of how things break down and don't stay the same, um, which is S3T or something like that, that um, I have a feeling I'm going to have to try and understand at some point, but it, it's an alternative explanation for how jets form instead of talking in terms of the deformation scale and the Rhine scale and one being bigger or smaller than the other. Um, it, it seems to be another way of trying to explain it, so I'm going to have to try and understand that at some point. Yeah. I, I think that might be a bit beyond my maths. <laughs> Is that so, a, can, do they do rotation as well? Does that theory include rotation? Yeah, so it's yeah. all in there, and it, it, it's... A, um, I think Laura might have mentioned it under a different name, actually. So it, mm. it, it's known un, under a few different names, and it, it's essentially a... A slightly simplified set of equations, I think, in, in or or it relates two sets of equations to each other, and how or whether this instability is there. So I think I'm going to try and understand that, um, which will mm. probably be hard work, but fun. Nice. Um, yeah. Um, but if you want to see Rosby waves, look at a picture of Jupiter. You can see them really clearly in the mm. cloud bands at low latitudes. It's awesome. And um, there's some animations I think you can probably find, right? Yes, like a, yeah, yeah, there are yeah. now, yeah. There's quite, because people have got so many photographs of Jupiter now. So what would the Rusby wave look like, you know, in these images? You know, you'll, you'll see a, if you, you look at the low latitudes and you'll see a gentle wave in the cloud striations, just a, an up and down motion yeah. across latitude. Yeah, um, and Rusby waves are hard to describe in an audio only medium, but... <laughs> yes. Oops, yeah. Another spike in the recording, sorry. Oh yeah, there it is, for sure. No, I see it. It's okay. Right, so we talked about a an aqua planet, a water planet. Uh-huh, which talked, might have jets you know, on it. Might have jets on it, um, and it, if it has an atmosphere, it gets way more complicated, I feel like. Um, I, I, yeah, I feel like it get, got too complicated too quickly. Mm. Um, we talked about exoplanets, we talked about fronts and jets. This isn't a checklist, I just um, I just wrote down some stuff. Um, we didn't talk about dogs. I'd, I'd written down dogs <laughs> because dogs. we have both um, ended up with dogs in our recent life. Uh -huh. uh, recently, here we talked about tidal mixing in different world. Uh, we talked about water is weird. Um, <laughs> we get in with dogs, right? Unless there's something else you want to talk about. Um, dogs love water. Is yeah. what, what I found. Ours learned that he likes to swim this summer. Yeah. Um, our fairy companion. And this is one that you were looking after for a while, and then it became yours over time. Yeah, he he's, he came to stay with us um, to help out a friend. Yeah. Um, and he stayed yeah. and got all four feet firmly underneath our dining room table. Um, <laughs> but it, it's nice to have another body to worry about sometimes. Hmm. Um, and to keep you warm when it's cold. 
<laughs> he's not meant to be on the sofa. Or rather, the rule used to be he wasn't allowed on the sofa. But then it got cold. And then it got cold. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the line around the sofa got a little dotted. Um, and mm. now he's just allowed on the sofa. But it's not really big enough for the three of us. So. Well, there you go. And so, yeah, we ended up with a, with a dog as, as well. To, to some extent, I think we've ended up with a joint custody agreement. With, uh, <laughs> it's kind of know. the same thing, wasn't it? Having mm. that friend when they needed... Yeah, we had some friends who, they live in Newcastle and they were going to the States and they needed us to look after their dog. And um, so we, we did. And um, the we, we were very happy to have the, the Corgi around. You know, the Corgi has been lots of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, my kid kid loves having the Corgi around. It's been awesome. And um, the people in the village, people in the town, it's a town now, Camborne, by the way. Um, that doesn't matter. Uh, they, they've gotten used to seeing him. They've gotten used to seeing like we walk him, you know, to school and back. We're, uh-huh. we're getting Alex or taking Alex back home. He, so people have just gotten used to seeing the dog around, and they they to want. The point they ask you where he is when he's not yeah. there. Yeah, um, and it's a joint custody thing. It's just like it's it's not he's not our dog exactly, but we're gonna have him sometimes, and then the other yeah. folks are gonna have him sometimes. Our friends, you know, will have them sometimes, and um, yeah, it's been it's been good. Um, the, the dog likes to herd us, so the the happiest the dog is the happiest when the last one of us comes home. Like it doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. But once we're all in the same room together, you can tell the dog gets so happy and relaxed the, and just the pack like, oh, us together. Oh yeah, because this dog seems to have a very strong instinct to herd humans to put them all into the same place. And so I don't know if the dog thinks we're some kind of sheep like thing. It feels a responsibility for <laughs> us. I think it's just they, they have such a strong pack instinct in them mm-hmm. that once they've identified you as being a member of it, they want you all in one location because yeah. then you're all safe and yeah. you're together. Um, so whenever the last human comes home, you know, whether it's me or Steph, the dog is so happy. The dog yeah, is just I mean, like... We find with ours that if we're both in the house but we're in different parts of it, he doesn't really know what to do. Oh, yeah. Because he knows he should be with us, but he can't be with both of us at the same time. Um, it can be very frustrating at times because it's uh, one of those things, if you move something for some reason, because you need to move it and you need to get into where it is. So you turn around, you put it down, turn back, and he's in the space looking at Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. What? Yeah. Why did you move that? Where? What's here? <laughs> is there anything to eat? And, oh, you mean I'm in your way again? <laughs> um, and uh, also, how dare you speak to me? Is uh, Well, that's more of a cat, isn't it? A cat is, yeah. how dare you speak to me? <laughs> And, uh, and, and a, a dog is hello I'm a dog <laughs> am I a good boy am I a good boy yeah <laughs> yeah and for, for us as well um, like I said we, we live in a village outside Cambridge and met a lot of really lovely people in the village solely through having him um, so just this morning as we were walking around I uh, bumped into another lady with uh, who had well still a pup really a, a year old dog and we were, we ended up chatting as we walked the dogs because um, solely because Ours had said hello to each other. Yeah. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, we made some nice friends down at the. And um, the, the we used to, be able to use a field to walk the dogs. Um, we used to go down there quite a bit. You ever go in a pub with the dog? A, a pub friendly, yeah. a dog friendly pub. Yeah, we've got a really nice little pub in our village actually that mm. we've we've taken him up to. Um, and the the owners of that they I think, I think they used to have a dog or have a dog. Oh, okay. So, um, he loves it going up there. It's such a lovely, cosy British thing to do. Take your dog into a nice, warm pub on a winter day and, like, have everybody love on the dog. Except "Mm." when it's a cold, wet, wintry day, and what happens is after half an hour, the dog thaws out and you get this smell of wet dog. Yeah, that's true. And it permeates everywhere. Yeah, Yeah, that's less great. Um, 
but they usually love it as well because they get a lot Depending of attention. in the pub, that smell could just blend right in and could just become <laughs> part of the mix. Uh, yeah. Yes, it absolutely could. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that wet dog? <laughs> Mm. <laughs> or wet carpet or like you know that stale beer smell from yeah. that you get in old pubs yeah from dec- decades maybe centuries of beer being spilled everywhere and it slowly builds up into that strangely sticky layer yeah that you can't ever quite get rid of it smells the same in every pub everywhere yeah. <laughs> if it's an old enough pub wherever you go whichever pub you go to it's that same smell You're like, oh there it is I must be in a pub it's reassuring yeah. in its own way isn't it <laughs> and disgusting <laughs> and reassuring and disgusting <laughs> <laughs> like a kind of old friendship that you probably shouldn't be in anymore <laughs> you're like well I know what this is I'm comfortable in this friendship yeah let's just keep it's a little unhealthy but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about us by the way That's not, that was not a, just be clear that was not a self-referential <laughs> yeah but speaking of friendship thank you for letting me uh, exploit our friendship for the purpose of recording another podcast That's and, quite right. uh, for I've enjoyed myself crass self-promotion I don't know I like to talk so yeah, well, that's why that's why uh, you were a really good first guest, and why I thought, well, that's a sure, like Dave Monday. Let's start with Dave Monday. Um, you know, almost two years ago now. It's almost been Is two, it years. Really two years. We're approaching two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, about two years ago, we had that first conversation, which was uh, somehow I think even less focused than this one, if I remember <laughs> right. But. <laughs> I knew the yeah. microphones were turned on when I came in this time. Yeah, that's true. My <laughs> tricks won't work on you anymore. My uh, my tricks to... So what we had to do instead was just talk for a while and get over that initial awkwardness of having microphones in our faces. I felt like we got there I, well, about I've, 15 minutes or so. I felt like we were there. We were like, yeah, okay, Yeah, I've fine. almost not noticed it because mm. they look like little satellites. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, they just sat on the table. So, but lovely little microphones, actually. Um. Yeah, the so thanks again for letting me, you know, for, for being a myself. guinea pig two years ago and then for coming back today. <laughs> it's been it's been a lot of fun because uh, that first conversation gave me some confidence to like, yeah, okay, I can it's I can do work. this. Yeah, this this yeah. is going to work. I can I can get people to talk into these things and to <laughs> to talk about <laughs> what they work on and what uh, what their pathway was like. So I really appreciate that. But uh, let's get the heck out of here. Yeah, and let's hope lunch. we didn't say anything too wrong. That uh, one of our fellow professional nerds is going to take exception to. Actually, it's fine if we did. And if oh, I, we'll find and out, it, won't we? Yeah, we'll find out. No, it's fine. If we did, let us know. Uh, if we did say anything wrong, let us know. And then, and then you'll be Dan's next guest and can explain why we were wrong. That would be exciting. Um, no, this is the last one. I'm done with this. <laughs> <laughs> so I really I'm have cap- to I'm capping it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no. Um, yeah, no, actually, in general, I'm very open to having people on. You know, this is... Uh, I, I'm a little bit opportunistic in terms of who's around mm-hmm. and you know who can I get in touch with pretty pretty easily and you know who's willing to talk. That's that's actually you know there are folks who like doing this sort of thing and there are folks who don't. And I've run through a lot of the folks who enjoy doing it. I'm starting to run into more of the folks who maybe are a little more hesitant to talk. Ah, right. I'm not gonna I'm never gonna pressure anybody. It's not a pressure situation, but I'm very open to I just want it to be an opportunity. And I only want the people to do it if they like want to do it. Yeah. That being said, Lord Zana, um, she didn't let on, but she was uh, nervous about the whole thing and didn't tell me. And but she wanted to do it, and she pressed ahead. And um, you know, good, good for her. Uh, yeah. She wanted to challenge herself because that's the kind of person she is. Yeah. <laughs> she Laura's never like, backed away from that. She's no. well. 
I'd say she's one of the scientists I admire the most. Absolutely, yeah. Um, she's astonishing. A and, uh, thousand percent. Yeah. Um, I'm not surprised that she challenged herself. Yeah. But I bet she was a great guest as well. Absolutely. Yeah, she was fantastic. She was an fa- absolutely fantastic guest. And um, that's one of my favorite episodes, um, you know, and uh, <laughs> the look on your face. <laughs> like, I'm not going to rank the episodes. Okay. Did I look worried? This oh, my God, the, what if I'm in the bottom? <laughs> Well, this is definitely the, um, well, th- this isn't going out. I'm go- not going to release this. This is going straight in the in the trash bin. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, this has been a, a, a joy. I've really enjoyed this. It's been a privilege uh, and, a, and a really fun conversation for me. And um, I'm glad you've enjoyed it as well. I have. Good. Okay. I don't know how to end this. Some podcasts um, have an end. Um, and uh, then we maybe just, you need like, a little you know, theme tune. Well, I got that. So, it, but not now, right? I wouldn't play it now. Oh. Just let me grab my guitar. I'm going to pull my guitar <laughs> out and start playing the ending, the, the live ending theme music. All right. How about let's get the heck out of here. Let's and, get some lunch. And press stop. And I press guess. stop because I'm, I'm hungry and I want my fish. It's Friday. Uh, I want my baked, my baked fish. They serve baked fish now. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> there you have it. My conversation with Dave Monday, his second time on the podcast. Thanks, Dave, for returning and having a nice conversation with me. You cannot find Dave on Twitter. You can find him on email <laughs> and the internet. You can find his profile page at the British Antarctic Survey where he works. And there, of course, you can see his publications and get in touch with him if you like, if you're interested in learning more about his scientific work. For updates on the podcast at ClimateSciPod, you can follow that on Twitter. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, and I also post updates about the podcast from there. Coming up in, in January, I have a conversation with Mike Meredith about his involvement with the IPCC Special Report on Oceans and the Cryosphere. And in February, I have a conversation coming out with Libby Barnes, who works on atmospheric science. She specifically has been applying machine learning tools to atmospheric science and learning some interesting new things about how we might use those tools. So uh, I really enjoyed that, and I'm excited to share it with you. So take care of yourselves. I hope you're doing okay out there. Hope you're all right. And to uh, steal an outro from an old hero of mine, there's nobody in the world who's just like you, and people can like you just the way you are. Take care. Bye-bye.